joining us on the Path Radio Mix online. And to get there, type in thepathradio.com. That's thepathradio.com. And enjoy free streaming music all day long. That's it. thepathradio.com. All right, now let's get to the main show, the monthly social podcast with me, your host, Guido Perino, as you go on with Guido. Gingerbread houses and candy canes. It's December 2022. We're heading into the happy, happy, happy holidays. And joining us is renowned rock and roll photographer Lisa S. Johnson as we go over her book Immortal Axes and all the different guitars that she's photographed. We hear from Hollywood stuntman Kevin Cassidy. And we talk about his book Falling Down to Find Myself and our musical guest from Colorado, Jazz Robertson. Plus, loads and loads of tidbits. Here we go. Now, before we get going, a quick word from one of our friends of the podcast, Johnny Prosciutto. Johnny Prosciutto, artisanal Italian homemade products. We make it like our grandfather, or as we say, no, no, naturally cured, old-fashioned, and delicious. Order online at johnnyprosciutto.com, and we deliver right to your front door, where the only thing left for you to do is enjoy it with your friends and family. That's johnnyprosciutto.com. If you haven't gotten your Johnny Prosciutto yet, if you haven't used the special code, look, here it is. Go on the go. Head over to johnnyprosciutto.com. Limited time offer. First 30 people use the code go on the go. You get a free salami and a free cacciatore sausage with your order. Go on the go at johnnyprosciutto.com. Here, courtesy of the monthly social. I got my order a couple of weeks ago, and I did get some of the cacciatore uh, sausage and some of the salami. Looks good. Tastes fantastic. Uh, I also picked up some fresh sausage, and uh, it's pretty amazing. Like, the Johnny Prosciutto ships it in a, in a, like, a cooler-type container, packed in ice, and, you know, the, when it gets here, the ice is still frozen, and the food's nice and, and cool and cold, and... Um, yeah, I was able to freeze some of the sausage and some of the uh, salami and, and the other sausage went in the fridge and away we go. And the bacon, I ordered some bacon, some of the best bacon I have ever tasted. Came vacuum packed, but just delicious. Anyways, we talk about food and the holidays are coming, of course. The holidays are coming and there's going to be a lot of food. But right now there's a lot of soccer. The World Cup is on and of course... Uh, some unexpected teams are, are winning and some unexpected teams are losing. Uh, but that's going on in the world. And, of course, we talked last month about inflation. That really hasn't changed a whole lot. It was just reported that grocery stores made record profits. Um, you know, still that's going on. And, and um, last month we had a guest, um, Patty Grev, and she talked about garden towers and aeroponics. And, uh, wow, a lot of folks have been inquiring about that. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go back to the November episode and check out the Garden Towers um, segment with Patty Grav and aeroponics and growing your own home garden. Just fantastic um, uh, information there. And the folks that have been following up, 
um, some people have even contacted me and said, oh yeah, we, we've got one and we're trying one. And so just some interesting things with that. Um, our affiliate, thepathradio.com, talking about Christmas. Um, they are going to be streaming Christmas music Saturdays and Sundays, 10 a.m. and 7 p.m., some of the classics. And then throughout the week, Monday through Friday, between 9 and 11, you're going to hear some rock and roll hair bands at 8 o'clock and then metal Christmas music at 10 o'clock till 11. So a little bit of programming changing there going on for our friends over at thepathradio.com. A lot of good uh, Christmas music. And if you're more into sports, check out my other show, The Coach's Call. It's on YouTube, thecoachescall.com. And um, sometimes I have some guests there and we talk about different things, hockey, soccer, football, whatever's going on. Um, Very short podcasts are usually around, I don't know, from 5 to 15 minutes long at the topic of the day. Uh, But uh, some fun and and entertainment happening there. Um, Anyways, I've got a, a, like I always say every month, I've got a busy schedule here. I've got a lot of information for you. I have some really great guests again. Um, we always do. We're very grateful for the folks that come on here on the show and, and spend some time with us and spend some time with you. And uh, of course, we're grateful that you spend time with me and the guests. So our musical guest this month is Jazz Robertson from Colorado. Let's have a chat with her and then we're going to get to hear some of her music. Let's do that right now. Let's go. I am welcoming to the show songwriter, producer, and musician from Colorado, USA, Jazz Robertson. Jazz, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm good. The pleasure is mine. We've been we've been waiting a long time to get together. I'm planning this out for yes. like three months <laughs> or something, right? A little while, yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I have to take some I have to take some heat for that because of my some of my technical challenges that I had there. Um, I got to ask you right off the bat, Jack, sure. what a great name. Like I, when this, your, <laughs> you. your name comes across my desk, cause I'm, I also have the radio station, the pathradio.com and, um, you know, the distributors are sending songs to me and, and, and your name comes across my desk and I do like a double look. I'm like, wait, is it Jack? <laughs> The artist's name is Jack. Is this a name? Is this a genre? Is yeah, it yeah. <laughs> right? And I was like, hey, this is too cool. It just seems to musically fit. And then I'm like, is this your given name or is it something you adopted? It's not. So yeah, my given name is Jasmine with a Z. Um, it's kind of funny. I had, I, I was probably 16 or 17 and I was working at a, a Sonic drive-in. I don't know. Do you guys have Sonic? It's like the fast food chain. We don't, but I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, yeah. yeah. So I was, I was a car hop. I was one of the people that brought you out your food and I had a manager. He was a newer manager came in and as we were getting to know each other, you know, Sonic always has that loud music playing and, and he's like, you know, you love music. Your name doesn't fit very well. I was like, um, excuse me. <laughs> he's like, yeah, it doesn't fit very well. And he came, he reprinted my name tag. It was jazz with two Z's. And he said, that's much better. And I was like, actually, that's kind of fun. And, and it just stuck. So I have, uh, I have family and I have, um, more childhood friends than anybody else who still call me Jasmine, but other than that, it's just jazz. (laughs) And the new, the new world calls you jazz. I I love it. I think it was, I thought it was great. (laughs) Thank you. Cool cool story. (laughs) Sonic. Um, Sonic. Yep. Yeah. Sonic jazz. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
If that becomes oh, a funny. song, you know, <laughs> Sonic Jazz. <Right. laughs> I don't know. It's a catching title. Um, so, look, I, I if you've listened to some of my other shows, I get obsessed with where people come from, it, mainly because, you know, it, it kind of sets the stage for just getting to know, getting to know the people we're talking to. And um, I understand you're from Colorado. And yes. I was uh-huh. like, I was all getting ready to talk to you about hockey because of the Colorado Avalanche, but I'm because the Colorado Avalanche <laughs> only because one of my favorite players went to Colorado years ago. But we're not going to do that. I want to know. Look at when you're not <laughs> when you're not mixing music in your studio in Colorado. What do you got? What do you do for fun there? Sure. So our claim to fame is definitely the Rocky Mountains. Um, we have pretty much everything outdoors you can do here, whether it's hiking in the summer. A lot of people love the snow. So we got skiing, snowboarding, everything you can think of outdoors. We got it. And so I think that's what a lot of people come here for. And it's definitely a passion of mine is I love being outside. I'm naturally more of an introvert as it is. So if I can get away from the city and not be around people for a little while, that's even better. (laughs) (laughs) So are you a snowboarder? I am not. No, you know, I'm, I'm a native to Colorado. So you think I would be used yeah. to the cold and I'm just not, I, I love the heat. I, I think I would freeze. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Like I up here, like where I am, Richmond Hill, uh, Ontario, um, it gets cold. It's cold right now. Right. And, oh yeah. And, I believe it. You know, I'm, I always say, man, I'd love to live in like Florida or Hawaii or yes, for some different reasons, Texas, but, um, you know, just somewhere hot. <laughs> yes. Oh, I would love that. As you know, I kind of want both. I would, I would love to have a summer home and a winter home. So it can be in Colorado when it's here. We actually have over 300 days of sunshine. Wow. So it's really, really sunny. Um, but you, when it starts snowing, I would love to be in Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii is nice. Somewhere a lot nicer as yeah. far as the weather goes. Hey, so let's talk some music. Your, your first instrument, I want to talk about your first instrument as a musician, um, was the violin. Yes. And, and I, I just, you know, I'm thinking, I, I, I love the way a violin sounds. Um, but as a kid, when you're starting out, I, I just don't picture kids starting with a violin for some reason. <laughs> Everybody's like, I want to play guitar, or, you know, like yeah. thrash on a guitar. Or the or piano or. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but with you, it's the, it's the violin. Why was that the case with you with, with the violin? Sure. So it was, I was probably in the fifth grade, I want to say. And if I remember correctly, I think it was a requirement that because we all had some kind of music class. And so for that year, you had to play some sort of an instrument. And so we had our music day and we went through and we got to you know play with all the band instruments and see how those felt. And then we went into the orchestra room and got to feel those out. And I was just naturally really drawn to the strings in general. And so for me, it came down to either the cello or the violin. Oh, nice. Now I, as an adult am five foot and a hundred pounds. And so 10 year old me was really intimidated looking at that giant cello. <laughs> and so I ended up going with the violin. I I've always wanted to go back and, and learn the cello still, but I had no regrets with the violin. I absolutely fell in love with it. So I gotta, I gotta ask the violin. I picked up a violin once and, mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm a bit of a music hobbyist. I have a, a couple of acoustic guitars and other string instruments in the house. And anyways, I pick up the violin and what's it called? Is the, is the, it's called a reed, right? The, the, the bow, uh, the bow, right. The bow. Yeah. Yeah. So I pick up the, the bow and I'm thinking it should make noise, but, but, it, <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> so, 
So there's a technique that you got. There is. There really yeah. is, right? Like it's there not like is. You see it on TV and it just looks so so flawless, right? Like, yeah, and they're making the sound and the sound sounds so beautiful. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying it thinking, I could play guitar, I could play violin, right? Not the case. It's it's definitely, yeah, it's different. You start with a lot of um, just screeching noises as you're trying to figure out the weight of the bow on the strings. So yeah, that's definitely normal, but it's... um. Yeah, gosh, once you get it, it's such a beautiful instrument. That was my first hands-on connection with with any instrument. And so I, I love getting to that point where you just kind of melt into the two. You and the instrument become one, and it's you, you feel the music as it's happening, which leads to being able to improv as you're playing. And it's just an amazing experience. I absolutely loved it. But yeah, it took a little while to actually get down the, the basic techniques to get the right sounds. <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting that you just said what you said and that the part about where you, you become one with it. And it's interesting because I've heard other artists who play other instruments sort of relate to it that way, that whatever instrument it is that they started with or that they're playing, that they feel like they're one with the instrument. And sometimes when you see people who say that and you see them play, it's true. That's, that's what comes across is that, yeah. Um, you know, you don't see the person in the instrument. You you just, it all kind of blends together and they make something really beautiful. Um, I'm wondering, you look back now, do you think that starting with the violin helped make the transition to other instruments easier or harder? And I, I'm asking this for folks who, you know, and, and for kids even who are coming up and, and sure. trying to make their own decisions, right? Um, do you see it as one way or the other? Yes and no. I, I don't know that it necessarily helped me transfer to other instruments because I mean, you, even you know, going to guitar, you're going from four to six strings, or the piano is just this monster of options, you know. And so they can definitely be very different. But I think it did help me get a good foundation of just really basic music theory, chord progressions, things like that. And so the understanding of music and how it moves that transferred for sure. And so that, that was a helpful piece. Wait, and so just for, for folks who might not be familiar with the term, you, you said chord progression. What, yes. does, what does chord progression mean? If someone's hearing that for the first time, Jazz? Yeah. So a chord progression is basically the, the underlying notes that you're playing and, um, Gosh, that's a, wow, I never even thought about how do you describe a, a chord progression? <laughs> you know, I mean, modern music, it's kind of interesting when you look at it. Most modern pop songs are basically four chords, four mm. notes that are just played over and over and over, and they just loop through the whole song. And so, um, but there's, there's structure to it within, you know, a musical scale, as they're called, and, and how they move. And so... Yeah, that the chord progressions is a, it's a good understanding to have when you're starting the song right for sure. That's good. That's good advice. That's good advice for folks to sort of connect and, and understand with there. Um, I'm wondering again because and I, I'm, I'm sort of focusing on the violin, but it doesn't have to be the violin because maybe there was other things going on. Did you have musical influences um, when you were writing and singing, or when you started writing and singing, or you know, did even before you started writing and singing and you were playing violin, did you already have some influences at the time? That is a great question. I it's it's so interesting to me because especially over the last you know ten twenty years, we have access to more music than we 
ever have in history. I mean, anybody and everywhere can just upload music to the internet. It's for good and for bad. You can, but we have so many different access to these different artists. And so for me, when I think of an influence, I, I, think so many names come to mind. I mean, I grew up on classic rock, so I loved Aerosmith and U2. Like that's where I started, but I also love, you know, the, the emo alternative scene. So I grew up listening to a lot of My Chemical Romance and Fallout Boy before moving into more pop influences. So I'm kind of all over the place when it comes to writing. Yeah. I more grow up with the mood. What, what am I writing about? And uh, I'll identify a song that kind of captures a similar emotion. And I gravitate towards studying that and like, why why does it make me feel this certain way? And so it kind of, it varies from song to song. It's kind of all over the place. (laughs) So it's kind of interesting because I have some of my questions later on might reflect, I think what you just said, because when I looked and studied your songs and I, I am a bit of a nerd when it comes to music. Um, I do study songs. I, I love lyrics. Um, I do look at the structure of songs. I, I do try to figure out what's influenced the song. Um, it, it's just part of my love affair with with songs and music. <laughs> it's, sure, it's, yeah. Well, so, so maybe we'll get a little bit into that too. Um, and you know, I want to I want folks to understand. Look, you're you're not just playing the violin. You are a multi instrument artist. You have extended in, into guitar and into piano. Um, you are singing on your new songs that we're going to talk about. Um, and we talked, you just said earlier, you know, you feel at one with an instrument. Do you have a preference, uh, or are you more comfortable with or without an instrument when you're singing? And I know, and I'm, you know, for myself, I'm, I'm always more comfortable with the guitar and singing, but it's more of a crutch than a, than a skill, um, that, you know, Mm. that I I do that, but I think musicians sometimes are in in a different position. So, you know, where's your comfort zone when it comes to that? So I am definitely more comfortable without the instrument. Um, You know, violin, I I became very fluent in it, as I call it. Um, When I moved into the piano and guitar, I basically, I self-taught enough what I needed to to write and to feel out the song and, and to put that basic piece together before taking it into the studio. But if you ask me to actually get on a stage and play piano while singing, uh, <laughs> that probably would not happen. I, I would be pretty, pretty terrified to try that. Huh. So yeah. So definitely without is what I prefer. <laughs> now you released and that, that's interesting. Like I said, everybody's kind of got their own, their own feel for, you know, for that moment or the stage or, or the instruments of the yeah. song. Um, you released your first single and this might be a surprise to folks, but, but, uh, you released your first single, I think in July, 2021, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So we've got, yep. a, we've got a fresh artist here, right? Um, yes. That, that song was called Collide. Uh, it did really well on the streaming circuit. Um, I'm going to play it a little bit later on in the show. Um, can you tell us what we should be listening for in that song? What's, what's the message? Sure. So when I sat down to write Collide, I was going through a grieving process for a very significant past relationship of mine. And it was kind of funny because I I had suppressed it for so long. And that's something I think you learn when you make that mistake is if you suppress any kind of pain or anything that needs to be grieved, it festers, it comes back and you have to face it. And so 
for me, that came into, you know, sitting down at the piano and I told myself, I promised myself, you know what? Nobody's ever going to have to hear this, <laughs> of course. And, uh, but it, what, it, what that allowed me to do is just be honest with myself, um, believing that nobody else had to hear what I was, what I was going to put pen to paper. And, um, and so that's really what I was exploring is just the, the concept of love and loss and what happens when you are letting go of somebody who is, you know, still, still here, still alive, but you just know that it's for the best that you're not with that person. So you shared a personal moment there with us. So I thank you for doing that. Uh, yeah, I sure. think it takes courage to do that. Um, but you also shared a song that you decided no one was going to hear, but we're all, <laughs> we're all hearing it. <laughs> yes. How did you convince Yeah, it was kind of funny how that, that happened. Yeah. How did you convince yourself to do that? You know, it was just kind of a gut feeling. I'm, I'm very much someone who leans into intuition. And I had always wanted to start learning music production. I thought that would be kind of fun. And when the lockdown happened in 2020, I suddenly was home with all of this time. And it was like, okay, there's no excuses now. I'm, I'm just going to do it. I took some online courses. Absolutely loved it. I put together Collide. And it was just that next step. I had a gut feeling like, you know what? be pretty cool if I just had a song on Spotify, you know, maybe I'll just go take it into studio. And cause I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't with mixing and mastering and that's that section of finalizing a song. So I took it in. I'm like, I'll just let somebody put a little mix on it. And I just got introduced to the right people. And uh, Steve Avidus is one of the main producers who I've worked with. And he listened to collide and said, you know, I can throw a little mix and master on it if you want but I think you might have something here. He said, and if you're willing and if you, you'll trust me, we can do it right. And so it was just a gut feeling. Well, okay, here we go. And that just led one thing to the next. And before I knew it, I was releasing a song. It had a music video next to it. It was kind of a whirlwind going, what the heck just happened? <laughs> and, but it happened, but it happened. You, it did. You know what's wild jazz is that um, for all the, bad things that the pandemic was for a lot of people. And I don't want to minimize that for anybody. Sure. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, folks who found themselves or something about themselves during that time, because it seems we had, we had time with ourselves. Yeah. Um, And, and it just sounds, so if, if the lockdown hadn't happened, do you think collide would have happened? You know, it, it may have, but it definitely would have taken a lot longer. Yeah. A lot longer. So, um, just to lighten things up here, uh, speaking about, speaking about messages, um, I understand that you might have a a certain opinion when it comes to concert swag and, and (laughs) you're, you're laughing where it gets purchased. And I want to know, are you willing to share with us a little bit about that? So you, you have an opinion about that, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. Yes. And it is probably kind of a petty thing, honestly, but so I, I love concert merchandise. I, I get something at probably almost every show that I've been to. I, I love it for me. If you are buying something at a concert, it has the cities, it has the dates on it. It's kind of a badge of honor. It's, you know, I was actually a part of that little piece of history in that artist's career. I was there. And so if I wasn't at that show, I won't buy the official merchandise. 
And it's just, it's so disappointing to me. I mean, if you think about two people, two strangers, if they see each other out and they, they're each wearing a, you know, a college hoodie and you go up to, oh, did you go to that school? Me too. There's a connection there. And I feel that way with concerts. When I see somebody wearing a concert t-shirt, I'm like, oh my gosh, I was at that show too. Wasn't it a great show? And when they look at me like I'm crazy and then I realize they weren't actually at the show, I'm always so disappointed. <laughs> so for me, I'm like, if, if you weren't there, like I, I don't wear it, I, I won't wear it, I won't buy it. So it, that might be kind of petty, but that's definitely, I, I, I thought, it's a pet peeve. <laughs> I thought it was good. I thought it was a good point that you made, right? And I thought about what you were saying, because this weekend I was going through some of my t-shirts and I, I was... Uh, folding a 2006 Guns N' Roses t-shirt oh. from the Air Canada Center when when they played there. Uh, I, I've probably I've seen Guns N' Roses more than any other band in, ever. Like I've I've seen them. Oh wow! It'd be amazing. Seven or eight times now, and um, I think maybe the next time I that I I do want to see them, I want to go to Los Angeles to see them. But I've seen them many times. Anyways, so I, anyways, I'm folding this shirt and I see the dates and I think of what you were saying about. <laughs> The t-shirt and the merch and, and the concert. And I thought, I think you're right. I think that you make that connection, right? Because it's, it's yeah. there and it's something special. And then like, if, hey, Jack, oh my God, you have the same shirt. You were there. Yeah, I was a sitting section, you right. know, 112. Yeah, me, 114. Oh my God, we were so close. And so anyways, little little bit of concert. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. So, you know, if, if I'm ever wearing... An actual, it, it's with the cities and dates that that's the specific, but if I'm wearing it, it's because I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have to remember that when I get my jazz, my jazz t-shirt, when I come see you. Um, <laughs> so look, the second, you the second song uh, you release, the second single, it's called Hurricane. Um, and I was thinking, give us some insight on that song. What's it about? To me, and this is where I said, it structurally sounds a bit different than Collide. And, mm-hmm. you know, earlier you kind of said, you know what, I have different influences. I'll try different things depending on the mood. Was that, was, was Hurricane a new direction for you? It was and intentionally so. So I actually, um, Collide and Hurricane for me are kind of a pair. So I, I wrote Hurricane about the same relationship that I wrote Collide about. And what I was specifically exploring is the concept of how multifaceted and how multi-layered any one relationship can actually be. And so for me, I collide was about the pain of the grieving. And with hurricane, it was kind of the flip side of that coin of that. It was the anger. It was the, I can't believe this person hurt me like they did. I was angry at me. Like, I can't believe I kept letting myself be in a position where I was getting hurt. And so for me, it was intentionally meant to show that, that, very contrasting side of the, the explosive and I'm done. <laughs> no more. I don't care if I lose you. We're done. <laughs> so, so if, if you were putting these two things out together, side A, side B, is that what I'm, what I'm hearing? Basically. Yeah. That, that was kind of how I, how I found it in my head. That's how I see it. No, I'm, I'm trying to envision like, you know, sun records back in the day. And jazz yeah. is a record and it's side A, side B, and it's sort of a, a combo of, of these two songs. But but yeah. um, cool, cool um, perspective that, that you were able to do that. Did, now, did you write Hurricane at the same time or was it you because you said, hey, I, I went and produced Collide and all that stuff. And then did you do Hurricane later or was it you already had it and then later just finished producing it? 
you know, it was, they weren't that far apart. Um, so collide, I had actually been sitting on for a little while. Um, but then I, I wrote hurricane maybe six, six months to a year later. So fairly close together, but I produced them at the same time. Now I was going to jump to, a. um, so the reason that you and I connected was because your song, it ain't me came across my desk, but before it ain't me, you, you did point out to me, Guido, there is a third song. <laughs> By the way, before you just jump to that, there's a, what's the third song, guys? What is that one? It's called Stay. Yeah, Stay was the third song. And give us, give us the progression on Stay. Sure. So Stay was, again, that was just kind of experimenting. I felt like it was kind of a different direction from collide or hurricane i I wanted something even though the topic it was another breakup song so it was definitely had some weight to it but i wanted it to be more fun i wanted it to have a beat and you know at the end of the the song we have this collision where it's the bridge and the chorus happening on top of each other and it was just for me it was just really fun and so that was kind of the direction i I wanted to go with that one and just experimenting with was similar but definitely a new sound so we're gonna with stay we're gonna put the links in the podcast notes we're gonna have people go and find that one we're not gonna play it on the show that'll be the go find it because it's something (laughs) special so um yeah we'll do it that way but yeah all right so um it ain't me um i said that that came across your name that song came across my desk uh look to me it had a bit of a pop country feel to it and uh, I'm I'm a bit of a fan of pop country sometimes, <laughs> but um, what's uh, what are we hearing in in it ain't me? Sure. So yeah, it was so interesting to me that you had said a little bit of pop country, and I I went back and actually listened to the song when you had said that. I was like, wow, I can I guess I can kind of hear that actually in my mind. I felt a little bit more on the alternative side is what I was trying to lean towards. Um, you know, we got the we have a, a guitar solo in there yeah. and just something that helped me tap a little bit more into my rock roots. And so that, you know, we've got, we've got the rock drums and the chorus and the high energy. It's definitely to date my favorite song that I've released um, production wise, but yeah, I was trying to tap a little bit more into the rock side of my roots. I, I had been very firmly in pop up, up until then. So you're like, he's crazy. There's no pop country. Let me go listen to it. Um, <laughs> no. So it's funny. You see, say I can see it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that you're supporting. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> so I when I listen to it, and you're right, there's some of those other elements to it. And when I listen to pop, like the more aggressive sort of modern pop country, they've been it's been migrating to sort of that rockish type of sound. And I thought, all right, blend mix, but I do like it. It's sure. it's, a, it's a fantastic song as well. Um, thank you. <laughs> But you're not you're not stopping. You're going to keep going. I I think that you've got a new song on the horizon, and that's coming out soon. Maybe <laughs> I do. Yeah, I actually I have a few songs lined up. Yeah, um, I am in studio right now working on them. I am so I can't even tell you how excited I am to get these songs rolling. Um, I'm definitely looking early 2023. Want to kind of right out i want to say the end of the year but oh my gosh it's only a year and a, or a month yeah. and a half away it's so close and so i kind of want to ride that out the rest of the year and then i'm eager to start releasing at the beginning of 2023 are you is it going to be one at a time or are you going to put out a 
a little mini album or something. Yeah. So I'm still planning on doing, um, singles. And yeah. so maybe eventually I'm sure I will come to the point where I'm ready to release an album, but for now I'm, I'm giving them my full attention each individual song. So we'll look forward to that and, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll connect on those as well. Um, I want to ask this and, you know, quite often I say like for, for others who are finding themselves or their craft or, or kids coming up, um, what has been your experience as an indie artist? I mean, you know, we're catching you at a time where things are launching, you're starting out, you've talked about some of the progression that you've had. Um, what are some of the challenges, things that are working out advice that you'd have for others when you're going through this experience? Yeah, this is a really interesting era in music because again, kind of going back to what I said earlier, I mean, we have so much access to music and artists today have more opportunity to be heard than ever, which is a blessing and a curse because there's the opportunity there, but that means there's also a lot more clutter that you're trying to break through. So from that standpoint, it can definitely be a challenge being an indie artist, but that's one of the reasons that I, I focus mostly on the singles right now is, you know, when you have an album, Typically, if I'm sitting down to listen to an entire album, it's because I am dedicated to that artist as it is, and I'm excited to hear every single song. But we live in a very microwaved society. People have a very short attention span a lot of times. They, they want you know the singles. They want the, the, the quick release. And so um, I'm focusing just on the singles right now for that, that very reason, as I'm you know, connecting with people, really getting my music out there in the world for the first time and just giving my whole heart and soul into each, each song. And, um, that's been a good experience for me. I have definitely been able to, to reach people, I think with the individual messages as I'm focusing on each song. And, um, I like, I'm, I'm grateful for it. We don't have to to wait to be, you know, quote unquote discovered anymore. Like you can just get it, get out there and start releasing and, You'll, you'll connect with your people. And, you know, Jazz, you talk about, um, you're making so many great points. Um, you talk about how we consume music, how we consume data, how quickly we consume it. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side of it, it's not quick for you to make a song. Like the, the things that go right. into making a song... <laughs> You know, we may get it in, let's say, January, but you might have been working on it for six months already. Yeah, that's true. Right. And I, I just want to I want to make sure that folks understand, you know, well, it isn't just, well, we just spit out a song and there it is. And I, I guess it could happen that way, I suppose. But most most artists that I've talked to go through quite a process to to get that final product that gets released. Yeah. And, I, and it sounds like you, you do the same thing. So it's not just this quick, okay, here's the next one. We consume it that way, but there's a lot that you right. put into it. And, you know, and I think there's um, very differing opinions on that. Some people saying that it's better to be, you know, released quickly so that it's consistent. Um, I'm very much a quality over quantity person. Yeah. And so it does. It, and sometimes it's frustrating because I do see other artists that are, you know, every other week they got a new song. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it takes me a lot longer to put together my music. But I am always grateful because when I, when I finish these songs, I put them out there, I reach this point, And this is what I look for you know, that intuitive feeling that, you know what, 
this song is exactly what it needs to be. It's exactly what it wanted to be. And I wouldn't change a thing. And for me, getting to that point is totally worth the months of time and effort that it takes to really dig into these songs. I can completely relate to quality over quantity. I, I, I love, I love that approach and I try to live it. So, so yeah, (laughs) for sure. Um, so this sounds like something I might've already asked you, but, but not quite. Um, if I say to you, what's next for jazz in 2023 and beyond after the next single comes out, what do you want to do and where do you plan to go? And, And what I'm asking you here is not, are you writing another song? Sure. But, but, you know, I often have conversations with artists and, and, and folks, and I say, what's plan A and what's plan B? Is, is Ooh. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't actually ever looked at that. You know, what's funny is right now, my goals are more built around the why than they are the what I, you know, I'm, I'm coming through this, this, era in my life where again, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of these relationships, these memories, things that I should have processed when I went through them and I didn't. And so for me, it's the goals have been around my why and I'm sitting down and like, I want to write about what's, what's real. I want to be authentic. I want to put out there what, what I've gone through. And cause I know that other people have gone through the same as opposed to having a more concrete goal as you know, I want, I want to put out an EP. I want to put out an album right now. I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm rolling with it and I I am putting out what my heart needs to put out. And I fully believe that that is going to lead me to exactly what it needs to be. So I'm just focusing on the why right now. So when I say, where do you plan to go? I think the answer that we're getting is we're going to get authentic jazz over (laughs) the next little while. Yeah. Yep. More music. It's the, the, yeah. Music is definitely not going to stop. That's coming. <laughs> so Jazz, we're, I said we're going to listen to your songs throughout the show today. I'm going to be playing those in between other segments. Um, but if someone wanted to add them, get their own copy, add them to their library, which when they hear these, they're going to want to do. Uh, <laughs> how do they go about doing that? And then if you, once you tell us, I'm going to put all that information in the podcast notes so that they can click the links and go there too. So how do they do that? Perfect. Well, I am wherever you get your music, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, YouTube, like you name it, I'm on it. So it's wherever you would prefer, you'll find me. <laughs> and you, do you have a website? I do. Yeah. It's jazzrobertsonmusic.com. Okay. So we'll include that. And I imagine from there, you can also get to all these other places where jazz is. Exactly. Yep. All my social medias, it's, it's all right there. Right on. Um, Jazz, I, before I let you go, um, is there anything else that you might want to leave us with before you take off? Well, I, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you for having me. I'm like, I said, I'm so excited that we were finally able to connect. This has been awesome. I think if there was one message I would love to leave people with is just to really embrace that healing is messy it is so messy. It's not linear. Sometimes it feels like you're going in circles. And I've definitely experienced that as I'm sitting down and really pouring my heart into these songs. But just to know that that's normal and it's totally 100% okay to ask for help if you need it, because we're human. We all go through things, but the freedom that comes at the other end of, of actually facing whatever it is you need to face 
is a hundred percent worth it. A hundred percent. That is Jazz Robertson inspiring truth, validating experiences, and doing it through the journaling of her songs for you. Jazz, thanks for being here with us and sharing your talents and self with us. And I hope we talk soon. Yes, thank you so much. All right, let's take a little music break with Jazz's first single. Here is Collide. Tattoos melts into my waist Conflicting, addicting Hooked on the way that your lips taste So unlike me to be acting on emotion Lost my inhibition taken by the moment I know what's wrong but in the passion I feel frozen Chasing the addiction of the high before it's broken Then down this road Know how it goes but Don't say it, can't take it So pathradio.com plus i'll have jazz's contact information of where you can download it for yourself all right let's get to our next guest renowned rock and roll guitar photographer lisa as johnson and this was a fun interview too uh we were having so much fun we actually did the interview in two parts because we just got carried away with the conversation all right here we go enjoy lisa as johnson 
I would like to welcome to the show best-selling photo book author Lisa S. Johnson, a native of California and adopted Canadian. Having grown up in Alberta and British Columbia, she's going to share with us stories about her book, Immortal Axis, uh, which features guitar photos from over 150 critically acclaimed rock stars. Lisa, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on, Guido. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, me too. Right on. I, listen, I got to ask you something. Um, Lisa S. Johnson, we share the same middle initial. Okay. I'm Guido S. Perino. So are, are you willing to exchange the S's? Or, or are we keeping <laughs> well, sure, that but I don't think we have the same one. I'm Suzanne. No, I can't. We don't. <laughs> yours? Salvatore. Salvatore. Okay, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah, it's my grandfather's name. So I okay. was thinking, I was going to guess, I was like, Lisa Samantha Johnson. I was thinking, is it Samantha? Anyway. No, my mom named me after Lisa, a character who was on As the World's Turns, her no favorite. way favorite soap opera and i don't know where the suzanne part came from but i go by lisa s johnson because there's actually another lisa johnson who's also blonde living in los angeles who's been photographing rock stars for eons <laughs> so we get confused all the time and before i actually met her in person i said to myself i need to go by lisa s johnson because i don't want People still get confused, even with the S in there, and at least it does help to differentiate a little bit. And I, I've since met her, and she's just awesome. I love her. I call her my my Lisa Johnson sister. That's awesome. And hey, here we are clarifying things on the monthly social, just like we always do. So unexpected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you recently wrapped up a tour, and uh, we've been talking Canada here. You re- recently wrapped up a tour out in British Columbia and Alberta with the book. Um, is it fair if I say to you, what's it, how is it to be back in Canada? Like, uh... Oh, I love it. I mean, I go back every year because my whole family lives mm-hmm. there. So I usually go to Canada at least twice a year. And during COVID, it was really tough because I couldn't get back to say, you know, be with my family. Um, but I happened back now and it was really wonderful to be back. And the first thing I love to see when as soon as you, you get in your car out of the airport or if you cross the border is a huge Canadian flag uh, blowing somewhere. And my heart just swells because even though I was born in California, I moved to Canada when I was seven years old. So all my, you know, formative years were in Canada. And so I feel Canadian, you know, in my soul. Um, but of course I love the weather down here in the States. So yeah, I, I can't, I can't argue with that. I, but there's, you can't, you can't really, I don't think you compete maybe, maybe in Ireland and Europe, uh, some areas you cannot compete with Canadian rockers, the spirit of Canadian rockers. And I grew up going to concerts at the Edmonton Coliseum and my first one was kiss and Alice oh, Cooper no was the second in the same summer. I was, I think 12 and then uh, the following one was um, ACDC, and I never looked back. I've always been a classic rock junkie since. You know what? It's funny you mentioned Alice Cooper. I, I never got to see Alice Cooper. I had tickets to see him, and I was with a group of friends, and one of the guys that, that we hung out with, he really wanted to see him, and he, he hadn't gotten a ticket. I think I was about 15 years old. I gave him my ticket. Oh, but, man. But, but I never, ever then got to see Alice Cooper again. So, anyways, yeah, still well, time. Hey, he's still, still touring. Yeah, still I was gonna say there's still time. I got to catch him at some point. Yeah. Um, hey, what's your what's your favorite thing about Canada? Other than the rockers, what's your favorite thing about Canada? Oh, the Rocky Mountains. Rocky Mountains. I grew, I grew up skiing in Banff and really? Jasper. Oh yeah, and uh, also in um, 
Whistler used to love Whistler skiing down the back bowls, all the double black diamonds. Yeah, I love. I'm gonna it. have to reverse this. You're a Canadian and an adopted American. That we gotta <laughs> reverse that intro. Um, you talked about um, when you were seven. I, I hope I got this right. You grew up in Slave Lake. Is that how? Is that it? That is Alberta correct. Mm-hmm. on the Saw Ridge First Nation. Yes. How long were you there? Seven years. So you were seven when you moved there and you stayed seven years. Yes. Yes. It was very cold. And I did walk to school in waist deep snow. I can attest to that because first of all, I was little, but second of all, so much snowfall up there and so freezing. One time we had to dig our house literally out of the snow. You had to dig your way out of the house, out of the door, and then you had to dig your car out from underneath the snow. (laughs) And then the graders would come by and they'd get all the snow off the road, but you still had to dig your own car out, you know? So yeah, it was pretty brutal. And my mom would wrap my head up in a, with a scarf with just slits for eyes. Cause you'd be like walking to school, freezing, be minus 30 or 40 below. Brutal. And when you, when you take that breath and you feel like you feel it freezing, right? Like you feel, <laughs> you, know. you know, you oh, yeah. know, right? every, every hair in your nose freezes. It becomes an totally. icicle. <laughs> So is that is that that. your fondest memory of of that area? Uh, No, that would not be my fondest memory. I think freezing my ass off are my (laughs) least fondest memories. I remember standing in Edmonton. I was working uh, uh, for the city hall as a secretary and the it was so cold waiting for the bus and they'd have those radiating heaters inside there that barely gave you any heat you know when i would stand there just shivering and thinking to visualizing in my head someday i'm going to move to the hottest place i can find and i would visualize myself laying on the beach and like sizzling underneath the sun and as soon as i got the chance to i moved to florida and that's when i i got out of canada when i was 23 wow Florida. Yeah, I I love Florida. I think it's great weather and um yeah, I'd like to I'd like to land there at some point. Just because of like you say the weather, right? Like I know the winters and the and the snow and I don't it's I enjoy the snow. I don't like cleaning the snow. Yeah. Right? I like playing in the snow, but cleaning the snow, oh, it's it's uh, it's painful. Um so help me make a, a bit of a connection here. Um when did you start getting into photography? And, and if you can, then, uh, I mean, you're in Canada, you're doing that, you stay there for seven years, you end up in Florida at some point. Um, when do you get in photography? Was there something that drew you to that? Well, my father was an amateur photographer growing up and he had professional cameras. He actually had my, both, all my family are hard workers. My dad had two and three jobs going at a time. And so he had his regular job, which was promoting um, a landscape in Alberta, in the province of Alberta. He started this whole thing called Stamp Around Alberta. And you got your little passport and everywhere you went, there were certain places you'd go and you'd get a stamp. And then he also worked in a camera store because he was interested in photography. And so he could get discounts on cameras and gear and lenses and filters and stuff like that. And I remember he always had these cool filters and he photographed the eclipse and he got great pictures. I still have those slides today of him photographing the eclipse. And I was always impressed by that. When I ended up in Florida, I had a job that transferred me down there, was an administrative position. And uh, soon after I left 
that job and I wanted to go to college for photography. I wanted to go to school. I needed to figure out what was my major going to be. And I noticed driving around, there were always billboards with images. Magazines had images. Every publication has images. And I thought, well, that might be a career because images are never going to go out of style. You're always going to need them, right? So I went to college for photography. And uh, then I, I ended up getting a job working for this photo lab that didn't even have a sign outside because their work was primarily for aerospace companies. Down there in Florida, you've got Grumman, Raytheon, uh, all these NASA, all these. So that was the company, that's the jobs that we did. And I had to have a secret clearance to handle all of their materials. It was classified. It was during the t- days of Joint Stars when Reagan was the president and they had the um, Joint Stars program where they put a uh, radar gear and camera gear in the belly of aircraft and they would fly at nighttime over, um, you know, areas where we were having wars or what have you doing reconnaissance. So we would get that, that film back. Then they'd fly it back to the United States, land in the town I lived in and bring all the film to us. And we'd have hundreds of sheets of film coming off of our uh, processors with black blankets around it. So nobody could see except for the people that had the clearances. So um, that job actually ended up landed me the job with Eastman Kodak. I got hired out of that because job, to move to Rochester, New York with that experience. And I became a technical sales rep for Eastman Kodak. <laughs> this is wild. I feel like I just went through like a, an X-Files <laughs> vortex there. Like classified. No wild. one's going no to call me, right, Lisa? And say, hey, you <laughs> can't put that on. Or... Yeah, you're good. It was a long wow. time ago. Wow, that's, that's phenomenal. What a wild story. Yeah, so I ended up working for Eastman Kodak, and uh, that's where I truly learned photography. You know, you learn it in school, you learn technical things in school, but Kodak really put you to task, and you had to really learn the films and how to expose them and for all different kinds of applications, because there's portrait wedding photography that's different from fashion photography, different from architectural photography. They all use different types of films and sizes of films, medium format versus 35 millimeter. And then we transferred into digital photography. So I had to learn all about that and photojournalism. And (laughs) and, um, I ended up working in Memphis, Tennessee. And there I started going to the Unity Church. And the guitar player at church asked me out on a date, on a picnic that they were having. And my father growing up, he's a guitar player, and he said, you cannot date musicians. So I never did. I was a good girl. I never dated any musicians. And so I call him up to confess kind of as a joke. I'm like, Dad, I'm dating a musician. However, he is the guitar player at church, and he also owns a vintage guitar store. And my dad said, oh, well, that's different. He's not a touring musician. That's the kind you can't date. You can date this guy. And he's got a vintage guitar store. That's perfect. I've always wanted a Gibson mandolin. If he gets one in, let me know. I want to get it. So I said to my boyfriend then, I became his girlfriend, and I said, listen, if you get into Gibson mandolin, let me know. And he actually did get in a 1917 Gibson mandolin. I actually have it right below me here. No way. My dad just gave it back to me. I said, okay, I want to buy that for my dad. How much? And he said, you can't afford it. But if you photograph some guitars for me that I have to sell that I don't want to sell, I'll trade you for the mandolin. So at that time, like I didn't have very much money, you know, so I'm like, sure, let's do it. So I photographed these incredible vintage guitars for him. And I just remember opening the cases and smelling the patina and and the inside of the case and, and remembering that smell of my dad's case. 
<laughs> my dad's gear. And I love that. And it brought me to my dad. And I knew that I felt like my dad would approve, uh, you know, of my photographing guitars, even though he, he wasn't thrilled that I had become, I'd gone to college for photography because he thought I was never going to make any money, but he was really pleased that I got this job with Eastman Kodak. So I was good now. So then I started photographing guitars. He just let me go to his shop and take any guitar down and bring it home and study it. That's what I did. Testing films and just using the guitar as my subject matter. And I loved it. And then Kodak ended up moving me to New York City about six months after that happened. And I thought, I still want to keep photographing guitars. I may as well photograph famous guitars. Everyone comes through New York. So the Time Out magazine has the list of everything to do in town. I, I didn't know anybody. I was new in New York. And I saw that Les Paul played every Monday night at the Iridium Room. And I'm like, Dad used to play Les Paul and Mary Ford all the time. I'm going to go see if I can meet Les Paul and photograph his guitar. So I went down to the Iridium Room, and I I did I met the bass player Paul Nowinski. He was in the, he was in the Les Paul trio at the time, and uh, I said, Hey, do you think Les will let me photograph his guitar? Here's some pictures I've taken of other vintage guitars. So he goes, Let me go ask him. So he takes the pile of pictures and he goes back. Ten minutes later, he comes up to me and he goes, yeah, Les says you can photograph his guitar. I said, fantastic. The next time I come down, I'll bring my camera. So I did. And that was the first famous guitar photograph was Les Paul's. What? And- it, like, so you just you, you blew my mind with that journey there. So you start off working in Kodak and, and then you meet somebody and, and you start photographing these guitars in the shop as a yeah. trade off. And that was your gateway. Just correct. Just a, you know, hey, just take these, and you can have this guitar for your dad. And then you, you actually, I don't know, you build up the gumption, the nerve, just like to just go, hey, I'm going to go and see if I can film, you know, photograph yep. Les Paul's guitar. Yep. That's exactly took, how took it the, went. Took down. the shot and that was it. I just, I just <laughs> felt like it, I felt compelled to do it. I'm like, what's he going to say? Yes or no? It's going to be right. one or the other. And so you use the word gateway, the true gateway was less. He right. let me photograph his guitar. And after that, I would call up people I wanted to photograph the guitars. And I'd say, you know, I've worked with Les Paul and I would really love, I have, you know, his blessing. I, I you know, he, he ended up writing the foreword for my, my first book, cool. Rockstar yeah. Guitars. And uh, so it was like a, the gateway was there. They would say, oh yeah, sure. You know, we love Les, come on over, you know, photograph the guitar. So, so- Lisa, if, if you, if less isn't that first, it isn't the gateway, you think you would have had that pathway still? It would have been harder. I think it would have been harder. I would have kept going. You know, I was compelled to do it. I really am in love with the sound of the guitar. I believe that. I was in love with my imagery and how the the shapes and how (laughs) sexy the curves are of the guitar. I was compelled to continue to explore the how I could continue to photograph the guitar in different ways. And I got a feeling off of the guitars, especially these vintage guitars. You get a feeling off of them. Like they want to be photographed. They they want to shine. They want to tell their story through the image, and they do. You're giving, you me, can... gu- you're giving me guitar chills. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even hearing myself talk, I get water in my eyes yeah. because it, the guitars are so. It's it's the the great North American icon. You know, was invented in 
North America. And the sound of it moves us. It's, uh, you know, just music is an international language. And so I just, I, I would have kept going, even if Les had said no, I would have kept going. But I think that by having that, I mean, just even having him write the foreword, I remember the night, it was 12 years after I'd photographed, I'd photographed his guitar. And I sat in with him one night and I, I had all these eight, eight and a half by 11 photographs of, I was flipping in front of him. I'm like, look, here's, Here's Zach Wilde's Les Paul. Here's Don Felder's Les Paul. Here's, um, you know, just everybody's Les Paul. Slash's Les Paul. And I, uh, Ace Frehley's Les Paul. I go, you are their hero. Right. Wouldn't you consider writing the foreword for, for my first book? You're the first guy's guitar I photographed. And he goes, well, I see what you're saying. He goes, okay, I'll do it. I go, don't forget, Les. I'm not going to let you forget, you know, because... You know, he goes, I won't forget. He's like, call, call Michael tomorrow, which who is his manager and set it up. So I did. And we set it up. And sadly, he passed away about six yeah. months after that happened. Yeah. And uh, he never got to see the book. Oh, but I did donate 10% of the proceeds of my first book to the Les Paul Foundation. Wow. For um, he, he gives to the hearing impaired. So it's a uh, good cause. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely one here. So. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. See, so that's yeah, good. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I, and I definitely one ear, and I try to play guitar. So I always say here at home to my to my wife, I say, "When I did, did that sound okay?" Because <laughs> uh -huh. I don't. Sometimes the the sound is off a little bit, right? mm -hmm. but um, that uh, what a phenomenal story. Um, you know, with less with less and all those iconic names that you're you know you're you're talking about their guitars, and it's funny you talk about the guitar and the style and, and how it flows. I, I always feel like when I go to a rock concert and I love watching the guitarist because there's something about it. There's just something fluid or something transparent, but it just flows. And it's like, I always look at the guitarist with their, with their guitar and they're one, you know what I mean? They just, yeah. it's, I don't see a, a person and the guitar. I just see the guitar and, and, and what's coming out of it. And the person, you know, it just, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal feeling if we, you see, we that see way. the same way because, you know, because my father was a guitar player, I was always more interested in the guitar players when I'd go to a concert right. than the lead singer. All my girlfriends were screaming over the lead singer. And I was just like, I'm all about the, the lead guitar player over here. You know, yeah. that's who I was in love with. And, you know, last night I went to see Elton John. He's got the oh, wow. goodbye, the farewell uh, Yellow yes. Road tour right now. And he was absolutely fantastic. Anybody who can catch that show before he's finished his tour right. ought to. He is, his voice is still just as good as it ever was. He was so grateful and gracious to the sold out stadium. His piano tuning was just beautiful and sounded amazing. His band was incredible. Like the percussion section that they had was huge two different drummers and then of course you've got Davy Johnstone who's been his longtime guitar player and he's up there playing a Gibson SG double neck with a slide he's playing slide on a double neck which I've never seen before and it sounded fantastic the way Fla that he Fla flawless right like that flawless right yeah Totally. They have yeah. it together. First class show. And then Davey pulls out this inverted upside down flying V guitar. That's just the wildest looking guitar you've ever seen. Um, so, yeah, I was really, really inspired just watching Davey Johnstone last night. And, you know, and then you're mesmerized by Elton and 
everything so else. It's is- funny. It's funny you bring up Alton. So I got to tell you this story. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but you bring this up. So next to me is you can't see it because it's over here in the corner. Is a Norman guitar. It's an acoustic okay. acoustic guitar. I picked it up at this store called Waltz's Guitar in Toronto at Davisville and Young when I lived down there. And a great little shop. You could go in. It was very intimate. They'd let you just play with whatever you want and tell us what you need sort of thing, right? Just don't and, play Stairway. Yeah, right, right. So I like at one point I was like, I like the neck on that guitar. I like the pickup. I like the body in that one. But, you know, I don't see anything that has all these. And they're like, we could custom make it. Like We can get it custom made for you. Really? Okay. So they, I ordered this custom-made acoustic Norman guitar. And one of the first songs I learned to play on it was Candle in the Wind. Oh, and so I called, the guitar is called Norma Jean. <laughs> so, oh, love it. That's right? fantastic. And so you bring up Alan and I'm like, I, I can't believe the connection there, right? And it's sitting right there. So anyways. Beautiful. Love Not that. about me, about you. I, I want to talk more. So um, your book, the one we're going to talk about, we're talking about right now, Immortal Axis. Did it take you eight years to finish? Yeah. Well, the first book took me 17 years right. because uh, I was working for Kodak and then I had two yoga studios. I'm also a, a Kundalini yoga teacher. And at that time I was into Bikram and I had two Bikram yoga studios. Um, so mm. it took a long time. Um, but then I, I sold my businesses and I, I'd left Kodak and uh, I was able to focus full time. So after the first book came out, I was on a momentum. You know, I still I had right. photo requests still going even after the first book uh, published. So I just kept going. But the second book took me seven years, start to finish. By the time you start and get a book in your hand, it's seven years. Yeah. And um, the website is called immortalaxes.com. I'll put that in the podcast notes for folks. But um, there's a couple of names there. And we talked about Les Paul, you know, writing in your first one. But Peter Frampton writes the foreword on this book. And Susie Quattro, the afterword, um, how'd that come to be? What's the connection with Peter and Susie on this one? Well, first of all, I just got to mention living in Slave Lake, Alberta. I used to lay on my little twin bed with my record player and I would play Peter Frampton comes alive and I would lay on my bed and just stare at that album cover all in love with Peter Frampton and his beautiful curly locks, long hair and that black uh, Les Paul. Of course, I didn't know it was a Gibson. I didn't know it was a Les Paul. I didn't know anything about guitars, but I loved Peter Frampton. And I never in a million years did I ever dream that I would photograph that guitar. Now, that very guitar also was in a plane crash. And it was meant, it was thought to have been per- uh, perished forever with all the gear. The two pilots died and all the gear was lost. And you can read about this in the, in the book. But um, uh, 32 years later, Peter gets the guitar back. Now, I had photographed his signature Les Paul three pickup guitar for the first book in 2002. And when that book published in 2013, that was the year that he got the original guitar back. Mm-hmm. So when I was shooting for this second book, Immortal Axes, of course, I went back to them and said, hey, guys, you got to let me photograph the original guitar now, you know. So um, I finally got the chance to go to Nashville and photograph it. And while I was hovering over that guitar, I mean, it's all burned up, right? He kept it exactly how he re- refurbished it when he got the guitar back, but it still had the the wounds of the plane crash, the burns on it, and there was uh, pearl uh, inlay, you know, the diamond inlays and the Gibson headstock. A couple of those inlays had popped out and were gone, and he didn't replace those. He left that as the, as the wounds because, you know, he was wounded when that guitar got lost. Right. And he said afterwards, I- I'm never going to get attached to another 
guitar again, you know, because that one was his baby. That that guitar changed his whole life, his whole playing, everything. Yeah. He was playing uh, hollow body ES-335s, I think, and they were feedbacking on him. And so he was, you know, he got that guitar because a friend of his said, hey, I just put a th- third pickup in this Les Paul. Why don't you give it a try? Because it cancels out the feedback, right? So he started playing that guitar and he just like was like, oh, my God, can I buy this guitar from you? This is amazing. And the guy goes, no, no keep it it's my gift so wow. that was his yeah. guitar you know yeah. so anyway after i'd gotten i got home from shooting the 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 guitar which he aptly named phoenix because it literally rose right. from the ashes i'm looking at the images and my heart is just like wow like this is the ultimate immortal axe and the reason i title the book that is because guitars hold the stories of the player, of the one who wrote the song on there. And even when that person lives or when they're passing away, have passed on, that guitar still holds that initial story and that emotion. And and it makes it, it immortal. It immortalizes the music forever. So I said to him, I wrote, wrote and I just said, Peter, I'm looking at these images and, and I, I'm just so inspired to ask you if you could write the foreword for the book because your guitar story is the epitome of the title of my book. And he, see, he agreed. I mean, he got it. He understood. It makes sense. Yeah, and, uh, and Susie, and but so I want to ask you something about oh, the forward, but Susie Quattro, how about that? Yeah, so and it's so in, incredible how this is intertwined. So I'm actually I I get approval to photograph Steve Marriott's guitar from Humble Pie. Okay, his guitar player Peter and yeah. him played together, and uh, in the same trip, also Susie Quattro's bass. Now, what's, so, is this is this like just you pick up the phone? Is this another hey? Uh, oh, it takes or? time, you know. Like Susie yeah. Quattro, I met in LA yeah. at the She Rocks Awards, which I'm a sponsor of every year. It's this phenomenal event that uh, uh, recognizes women in music. So Susie right got on. nominated and got the award for the Icon of the Year, and so I met her. And I actually had met her sister, Patty Quattro, prior mm. to that. And so she, I think she was key in making that connection happen. So Patty's Patty's guitar is also in the book, yeah. um, you know, The Pleasure Seekers. She was one of the first <clears throat> all-girl bands, too. So and Susie, I mean, they all kicked ass coming out of Detroit, right? They yeah, hung yeah. out with all the boys, the Kiss and, you know, uh, MC5, Wayne Kramer and hardcore, man, Alice Cooper. So, um, so these girls don't, don't put up with any BS. And, uh, so anyway, I'm over there and I was, I was scheduled to shoot Susie's uh, bass first. So I'm at her house shooting the bass and I'm, I'm leaving now. And like that bass is killer. Her father gave it to her when she was like 14 or something like that. It was the only instrument left in the house that none of the other siblings were playing. So she got stuck playing the bass. It's as big as her. She's so tiny. Anyway, and she didn't know it at the time. She didn't know it. You know, she just put it in her hands and just started playing it. Anyway, so I'm leaving. I'm like, okay, Susie, thanks so much. Oh, but by the way, I just wanted to let you know, Peter Frampton's writing the foreword for the book, you know? And she's like, oh, that's so cool. When I first came to England to record my first solo album, she'd left her family. She was in a family band. They were all mad at her for leaving the family. And she was just like heart wrenching, but she knew in her gut that that's what she had to do. And she was given the opportunity. The gateway was there for her. And she, she moved, took it and moved to England and was recording her first album, but didn't have a band. So they were hiring session musicians to, to play parts. They hired Peter Frampton to play on one of the songs. And she was saying to her manager, 
I really like him. Like, it'd be cool if he, he could become a part of my band. And he said, Susie, he's an amazing guitar player, but there can only be one star in the band mm. and it's got to be you. And that was before C Peter made it. You know, he was a session musician and wow. her manager recognized the, the enormity of Peter's talent at that time. And knew that he couldn't be, he'd outshine, he'd potentially outshine Susie. So I'm like, wow, that's so interesting because I'm actually going right now to photograph Steve Marriott's guitar. I'm like, he's like an hour up the road. So we say our goodbyes and she's like, cool, cool, right? So I get in the car and I'm driving to see to Steve Marriott, the guy that has Steve Marriott's guitar. <clears throat> and uh, I'm driving and I'm just going, She's got to write the afterword for the book. I mean, Peter wrote the foreword, mm -hmm. and that story she just told me is the perfect tie-in for the afterword. So anyway, I get over there to Steve, where the Steve Marriott guitar is, and it turns out that was the last guitar that Steve played, and he played it with Peter Frampton because he and Peter had aligned again so many years after Humble Pie and said, let's do an album together. And they actually wrote and recorded three songs, which he recorded with that guitar that you that's featured in this immortal axis book and it was the last guitar he played and he played it with peter so i get home from that trip and i'm just like wow like my mind gets blown too i'm like it's yeah. emotional for me i'm just like wow like the universe has got me on this winding road that's just incredible and so enriching for my own life mm -hmm. and it's so it's such an honor for me to like have access and to be able to share it with the world it's like my gift to the world they're like jewels all these images and so I get home and I write to Susie. I go, so great to have spent time with you. And I just drive you to Steve Marriott's realizing it, it would just, you just got to write the, the afterword for the book. I mean, and plus I want a woman's voice in the book too. And uh, she wrote back instantly and she goes, I feel it. I am the one that is supposed to write the afterword for your book. And she's a psychic. She's very, uh, she'll sit and t she'll look at you for five minutes and then she'll just like give you a download. So um, she wrote that afterward overnight. Like I had it within two days. What an incredible tie-in! That like that <laughs> when I was like looking at that, and I'm like, what is? It? There's got to be a connect. I don't know what it was. I was like, there's got to be a connection here. Phenomenal, phenomenal Nailed connection. It. Yeah. yeah. So I there was something else too. So I, as I went through that, as I went through your book, I went back and I reread the Peter Frampton's forward, and um, the last few sentences, and and you kind of touched on it, but I. As listeners are, are listening, I, they're, they're, they're getting an inside experience here with you. He says this, here's the cool thing. Maybe Immortal Axes will help you look at your own guitars in a new light. Where did that nick come from? What riffs did they play? Who did you play it for and how did they react? Memories, personal stories, artistic expressions. Yes, guitars need to be treasured. These famous ones and your own. Mm. So I, and I, you know, I'm, that's stuck in my mind and I'm looking through the pictures you took and, you know, like I, I'm always like looking at my guitars going, oh, it's got that scratch. It's got that Nick. It's got, there's this. And, you know, I, I ended up looking at my own guitars differently because then I was like, oh, that happened here. Oh, that I, this is when I went up to Sault Ste. Marie. This is when I went to Kitchener. Oh, Right. Now I'm like, I think I just want to leave it alone. <laughs> right? yeah. I don't want to touch it because now I'm like, I'm relating myself back to my own, right? And it was through your pictures and through, through like the words of Peter Frampton there that I kind of made that connection. But 
so I went through that and I think you did too, but did your relationship or the way you view guitars change once you started photographing them or was it already that way before? And then the photograph photographing was like the bonus, right? Like, cause you're capturing stories inside of stories here, mm-hmm. Lisa. Yeah, very true. Um, well, first of all, I love that you got that insight from reading Peter Frampton's forward and looking at my pictures. That's very gratifying to me. Um, <clears throat> Because really, you know, the work that we're do that I love to do, you're supposed to be in service with what we do. Like you're being in service by interviewing people, interesting people that that your your um, subscribers want to hear cool stories, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're being in service and I'm being in service by being being persevering, having this persevering attitude to just not give up and keep asking and getting access to the to the instruments that I love so much. I have to say that when I first opened that first case of that first vintage guitar that I photographed in Memphis, Tennessee, and smelling that patina, I had the spirit of those guitars enter into me and make me feel something I had never felt before. And I am kind of addicted to that feeling. So I can't wait for the next guitar case to open up. And that first guitar spoke to me and I I just knew instantly, like, I have to do this. And when I got to New York, it's like, I got to photograph famous ones. I got my practice down now on these beautiful vintage instruments, but now I got to photograph something that somebody really wants to see because it's owned by Les Paul or by Ben Harper or Ace Frehley or Rick Nielsen or Aldo Nova or, you know, anybody i mean that's that you love their music jimmy page i mean you get to see the the double next stairway to heaven guitar with all the nicks and scratches on it and he's not taken his off i mean that's exactly takes him to that place where you know the the guitar fell over and the neck broke off because someone accidentally pushed him and you know that someone that accidentally pushed him was neil young you know like you know you have <laughs> All those stories wrapped into one. So, yeah, the, these guitars are layered with stories. And you see that with the stickers that artists put on them. Right. And, the, you know, you see in this book, uh, Dimebag Daryl, his Dean from Hell guitar that's got the lightning bolts all over the front. But you never get to see the backs of guitars. And in my book, you do. You flip that that Dean from Hell over and you see how he has his truss rod springs uh, uh, set and you see all the buckle rash on the back of that guitar and you get to see the belt buckle that right. made those scratches which was his kiss belt buckle that he wore for years because he's a huge kiss fan and the guitar's photographed on his kiss pinball machine so <laughs> <laughs> you know uh you made me think of something too lisa you're 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 uh you're i'm supposed to be pulling stuff out of you and you're pulling stuff out of me um <laughs> the the memory of opening the case right and and the guitar and the smell um, I hope if, if, if my friend is listening, I hope he doesn't get offended. I tell this story, but, um, I was visiting a friend one time and he says, I don't really play my guitar anymore. Um, I was thinking about you. Do you want it? And hmm. I said, yeah, okay, sure. Right. It's, it, it was a, it's a Takamini guitar acoustic. And so he pulls this thing out and it's in the case and the case is, is just pretty, pretty banged up, like really banged up. And I open the guitar, and what comes out of it is like smoke, heavy smoke. Like like it it had it had been in a smokehouse. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so 
but I'm looking at this guitar and I'm thinking to myself, the guitar is like talking to me going, please take me, please take me and, and, and let's go. Right. It hangs like out, uh, out in my, in my living room here in the, in our basement area, I have, you know, guitar hooks and it's one of the guitars that hangs on the wall. Um, I brought it, I had it, you know, cleaned up in, you know, it doesn't smell like smoke anymore, but, but, uh, yeah, it, I did a little bit of restoration on it and it kind of hangs her, but it, it's just that the guitar talked to me. I felt like it talked to me anyways, mm-hmm. like, let's go, let's get out of here. Um, again, you're drawing, you're, you're pulling some of these stories out of me. Um, I want to, you're, you're telling the stories about the folks that you met and there's a, there's a couple, there's two or three maybe that I, I wanted to ask in particular and, and hopefully that's okay. Sure. Um, I, I feel like we're living the book. So anybody who's listening, I don't know how you don't want to have this book in your hands after, because I feel like you're, you're bringing it to life. Uh, you're really, the, the things you're talking about, you're bringing it to life. Um, I want to start with BB King, BB King. And one set of guitars that you photographed, uh, is called Lucille. Um, but you say many Lucilles in, in the book. And that, as I'm reading through it, I'm going, this is intriguing. Many Lucilles, right? Um, the, the first I think was a Gibson ES-225, but there's a story behind why he uh, named his guitar Lucille mm-hmm. and how those photos came to be. Uh, without giving away too much, can you can you walk sure. us through it? Well, I think it's kind of a a fairly well known story now. Mm. But he was playing in a in a juke joint back in the day when he was a young man, and juke joints are made out of they're tin shacks basically, and they were they heated them with barrels of kerosene, and they'd light it up, and that's how you stayed warm. Well, a fight broke out in this this bar. And the started place went up in fire. So everyone's running out of the building, BB included. And he realizes once he got out of the building, oh man, I left my guitar in there. So he goes back in to grabs his guitar and he runs back out and realizes what he just did, you know, was like dumb. And so he goes, what that, you know, what happened here? And they found out that this fight broke out over a woman named Lucille. So he named the guitar Lucille to remind himself never to do something so dumb again. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it's kind of interesting that people started naming their guitars, a lot of them after women, including yourself. I, you know what? Yeah, I did. Right. I'm, you know, unsuspectingly, but yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I just love that story, and and I I thought coming from you, I wanted I wanted folks to to hear that coming from you. It was such a cool story, and and so I got access because my girlfriend, who sadly recently passed away, and miss her so much here in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, she lived a couple doors down from BB, and she'd go take him, knock on his door, and bring him a cherry pie every now and then. And his <laughs> daughter Patty would answer the door, so she got to to know Patty a little bit, and then she introduced me to Patty. And um, that's how I ended up photographing his guitars. Mm. And uh, yeah, she's a dear friend of mine now. And that's so obviously this is after he had passed or whatever. And and you're filming. So what's that like? Like you're filming somebody's guitars and they're not around anymore. Is that? Um, You're kind of you're sad. Like I photographed John Lennon's guitar, too. Mm. You know, his J160E that was famous for the bed in that he and Yoko used in Montreal and in Amsterdam. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's bittersweet, isn't it? You know, you're photographing this, this, these guitars that you see them playing in videos when they're so full of life. Right. And so I'm, I'm <clears> grateful. <throat> I mean, I photographed George Harrison's Gibson SG that he used on, uh, the revolver album and, um, uh, 
John Lennon used it on the the White Album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's Steve Marriott's guitar is in there. There's a lot of people that have passed away in in this book, included in this book. Bo Diddley. There's a bunch of his guitars. I'm gonna ask you. I'm gonna ask you about Bo. I want to talk about that. So you're talking. You're the theme here. Passed away. So it's funny you say that because. Um, Tom Petty kind of caught my eye too. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the thing with that one is like, you know, as fans, we always have, we may have a perception about a musician or, or what they do and, and things like that, but it isn't always reality. You photographed his first Gibson flying V, but there's a story about the ownership behind that guitar. Yeah. It, it actually was never owned by, by Tom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't really his first flying V. What it was, was he, they, they didn't have any money. You know, they were a young group. They were Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. They were just kind of like getting their footing and, um, they had to do one of their, you know, they had to do their black and white promo photo that they sent out to all the record labels and, and radio stations and stuff like that. So you can actually see this image online. It's like the Tom with the <clears throat> rest of the band on a white background and he's holding a flying V which belonged to his buddy Mark Stimson that happened to have one and Tom thought the guitar was so cool but he didn't have one of his own so he was like hey Mark can I can I borrow the, the V you know for our photo shoot and so Mark loaned it to him and so and they loved the picture so much that it actually inspired the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers logo where you see the heart and the flying V going through it and um, that guitar eventually was auctioned off, and it belongs to a gentleman named Mark Diamond, who, you know, this is how these photo shoots sometimes happen for me. I We were looking for new homeowners insurance, so we're talking to this insurance agent, and I'm emailing back and forth, and my, my salutations at the bottom, you know, Lisa S. Johnson, 108 Rockstar Guitars, and the link to my website. So this insurance agent clicks on my link and sees you know, my website about guitars. And then he emails me, he goes, as an aside, you know, I happen to have this buddy who's a major guitar collector and he owns like, you know, David Gilmore's guitar and Tom Petty's Flying V. Would you be interested? I'm like, absolutely. So the next thing I know, I'm flying over to New Jersey to meet Mark Diamond and I'm photographing Tom Petty's Flying V and David Gilmore's Gretsch. So did you know it wasn't his his guitar before you did the... Yeah, yeah, I knew, I knew, because the the, and and the reason why it still qualifies to be in this book is because it is significant because it was what stimulated them to make that logo like that, Mm -hmm. and you can still see that photo. It's a most famous photo of the band. Um, You know, it's funny because as you're telling these stories, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of a lot of what you're telling me is listening and communicating with people understanding what somebody's looking for or wants or or what they're truly doing and things like that. And you just think, you know, we don't always take a lot of time to do that these days. Right. But it's really connecting. And so I, last year I interviewed Anthony Rosano. He was, he opened for Bob Seger here in Toronto, Anthony Rosano and the Conquerors. And I really liked, really liked his band. Anyways, I, I ended up calling him and saying, Hey, would you, would you be willing to do a, a show with me? And so, yeah, so we do a show and we're talking and he's telling me about, you know, how he's touring with Seeger and all that. And one of the questions I asked him was, do you still own your first guitar? And he says, I don't, I wish I did, but I don't. It's a blue area pro two SL Stratocaster. Wow. So 
He's on the look, Lisa. He's on the look for that guitar. Okay, <laughs> so I'm, I'm throwing out. it out here. Hey. I, throw, I told him I would, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on it for it. And since we're talking about that, like that just came up with, you know, um, with that sort of thing, people looking for that guitars and, and things like that. If you ever hear about it, we're looking for that guitar. <laughs> okay, well, I did just help Randy Bachman find his 1957 Gretsch 5120 that got no stolen in a hotel room in Toronto 47 years ago. And it was uh, by total chance, I he came to L.A. to promote a record, and I asked if I could interview him. So we did a YouTube. I uploaded the interview on YouTube, and I'm asking him about this guitar in the in the video, which got posted on YouTube. And I'm asking him about this Gretsch that was stolen. And so we he tells me all about it, and it is in this particular video. And that's it. You know, I'm like, okay, I hope I can help you find it, and we're gonna I'll photograph it, right? So this was like probably three years ago. Somebody saw this guy William Long saw that interview on YouTube. COVID hit. He had nothing to do sitting at home. He decided to look up that video Randy was talking about, finds, studies the guitar. He ends up finding the guitar for sale in a Japanese guitar store. But then when he, and he matches the pictures up, he can see it's got this special knot in the top corner. And the, below in small print, it says sold. So he's like, oh man, I found the guitar, but now it's sold. So he goes, but I think it's got to be in Japan if it was sold in a guitar shop in Japan. So he continues to keep searching and searching, and he finds this Japanese guitar player in a bar doing a gig playing that guitar. He matches the videos up. It's Randy's guitar. So Randy just gets the guitar back. Then this other film company also sees my my YouTube video, and they go, we want to do a documentary about this guitar. So they're filming this documentary about the guitar. Meanwhile, Randy emails me and he goes, Lisa, you got to come to Vancouver Labor Day weekend. I'm going to be playing that guitar for the first time. You can photograph it. I'm like, okay. So then another friend of mine happens to know, happens to know the guy who's doing this, the documentary. And he's telling him, oh, my friend Lisa, she's going to be going up to Vancouver to photograph Randy's guitar. He's like, you're kidding. We're going to be there doing the the documentary. We want her to be in the documentary. So I go up there and I photograph Randy's guitar and they've got the camera. So I'm going to be in this rockumentary called Lost and Found all about Randy Bachman's. When's that coming out? (laughs) Next year sometime. You're going to have to you're going to have to let us know. Do you still have the YouTube video out? Yeah, it's on my you can Google um, Lisa Johnson, Randy Bachman interview. You know, if you after we'll get the link. We'll I'll, put I'll, it, I'll we'll send it to you. I actually I actually I have a dinner to go to at six o'clock, so I've got to get off off the phone here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we got it. We have to do a part two. So, as I said, my conversation with Lisa was going to happen in two parts because we got lost in conversation mainly with the music and the guitars and the stories so there is a part two coming up but for now let's take a little break and hear from one of our friends of the podcast chaser's juice hi i'm richard chase introducing chaser's fresh juice a local business in toronto we've been in business for over 20 years initially supporting our local toronto area and now servicing all of canada Chaser provides fresh organic juices, ingredients, including citrus zests, dehydrated garnishes, and fresh citrus peels to enhance any cocktail or recipe you can think of. We have successfully supplied restaurants, distilleries, 
craft breweries, and bakeries across the country. Reach out to orders at chasersjuice.com for any questions you may have. We are a customized fresh juice company, and I'm sure we can help you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, at Chasers Juice. Now, let's get to part two of my chat with guitar photographer Lisa S. Johnson. Okay. So we just finished talking about, um, you know, the upcoming project with uh, Randy Bachman. So we're looking forward to that. Um, Lisa, I wanted to ask about Bo Diddley. Mm. He had a, a, you know, a holy trinity of guitars. Um, can you tell us about that and, and how you met Charlie Tona, who allowed you to photograph those instruments? Yeah. So um, there's a, a guy named um, Ricotta. Uh, that's his cousin and he makes ricotta guitars for different artists. They're hand carved guitars. They're stunning instruments. And he made one for JY young from sticks. And so when I photographed that guitar, the guitar tech didn't have a whole lot of information about it. So I started researching the luthier. And, um, so Vinnie Ricotta comes up and he's got this website and I, and I emailed him and I said, I just thought you'd like to know that I photographed this guitar of JY's and it's going to be featured in my book. And he was really excited and appreciative. And he called me up right away and just said, I'm super stoked. This is really cool. And because a lot of these private luthiers don't really get much press or, you know, exposure. Um, and so he was really psyched about it and we became friends over the phone. And then he said, you know what, you need to meet my cousin, Charlie Tona, because he lives down in Florida and he's, he was best buddies with Bo Diddley for many years. And when Bo passed away prior to his passing, he gave Charlie all of his most precious guitars because he knew that Charlie would keep them in safe, safekeeping and would do something significant with them. Um, he was worried that his kids would just pawn them off, you know, or sell them. And he wanted something special to happen with them. And so Charlie lived up to that. Charlie um, has had them featured in the very last issue of Guitar Aficionado magazine. He had them featured in the, this trinity we're talking about, the Father, Son, yeah. and the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Uh, they were featured at the Musical Instrument Museum in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I worked with the Museum of Design Atlanta for a very special guitar exhibit in 2020. And they, I worked with them to procure some of the guitars for that exhibit. And then plus they had a ton of my images, giant murals on the wall as part of that exhibit as well. And um, so they were pleased to have Charlie provide some of the Bo Diddley's guitars for that exhibit as well. So he's had it in, in three museums. I featured them as well in my booth at the NAMM show. And so Charlie's just a wonderful guy and he was very close to Bo and they met actually met when Bo was playing some gig in, in Florida and it was part of a car show and Charlie had collected cars, like cool kinds of souped up cars. And Charlie had his car there on display and Bo Diddley arrives there with his daughter and he sees this char car of Charlie's and he walks up to Charlie and he goes, do you own this, do you own this car? Charlie goes, yeah, I sure do. And he goes, well, I'm Bo. I'm going to be playing here later, and I sure like your car. He goes, I'd like to buy it. And Charlie says, well, it's not for sale. And he's like, what? Come on. You can sell this car. 
Charlie tells the story so much better. He's just amazing. He's got Bo's accent and everything just down. And Charlie just says, well, listen, I, you know, it's not for sale. And uh, so uh, they had some words. And then uh, Bo said something like, well, you know what? If you take my, my daughter for a ride in that car, I'll be okay with that. And, uh, and so Charlie ended up taking his daughter for a ride in the car and they were just best friends ever since because Charlie didn't stand down to him. You know, he wasn't like all fanboy, you know, he yeah. just kind of gave it right back to, to Bo and they were, they were fast friends ever since. And then Charlie actually ended up playing with him a lot and playing harmonica with him and guitar. And they ended up building some guitars together. So Bo loved to hand make guitars. And, uh, in my book, Immortal Axes, you'll see the very first handmade guitar that Bo ever made. And that was provided to me through Guitar um, Hard Rock International. Mm. And uh, I went to New York City and, and photographed it there, along with uh, Tony Iommi's Monkey Gibson SG and uh, Malcolm Young's Back in Black Gretsch that he used on that tour. Uh, but Bo's was like a, an extra bonus because I'd already photographed these guitars of Bo's that are all featured in Immortal Axes including his his another handmade guitar called the get drum and it's this very odd shaped guitar made out of wood it's heavy and he he built into the wood a midi player see back in those days no Bo was probably the fir- very first one to to innovate that like Bo was super smart he knew what he wanted he wanted to be able to sit and play guitar and be the whole band you know, because you're you're in Gainesville, you're like there's no other. You know, you you need to be able to make all the money. You know, so yeah. he wanted to be able to have all the sounds incorporated in that guitar. So he called it the Get Drum, and he actually meant to say Guitar Drum, but he misspelled it, and so he wrote right on the guitar G E T for guitar instead of G I T. He wrote G E T dash Drum, so it was his Guitar Drum guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very odd shape. So that guitar is called the father. It was the f- first one that he did like that. So then uh, he came up, he, he wanted to have another guitar. And so Charlie is also a luthier, just like his cousin Vinny Ricotta is. So Charlie makes beautiful guitars. And so he, uh, Bo s- said, you know, I want a guitar that's like my box shape, but I want a different kind of wood. And these are the kind of sounds I want. And so Charlie got this zebra wood and he made a box guitar out of the zebra wood to Bo's specifications. Um, and then they made the, the last guitar together that um, that that Bo wanted. And uh, this one also has a MIDI player that attaches to the bottom of it. So it doesn't have that odd shape. It's actually a box, his his signature box guitar. And then they have these like a uh, hooks where it kind of slides on and hangs down from the guitar. You'll see it in my book. Yeah. It's actually not pieced together. It's not attached, but you can see the guitar and you can see the, the MIDI player with his hat and his badge that Charlie had made for him because he used to say, you know what? Charlie, everyone has has their name. They've got B.B. King. He's he's the king of the blues. And you got um, uh, Ch- uh, what's his name? Uh, Chuck, uh, the other blues guy. Uh, oh, my mind's drawing a blank right now. And he's the king of soul. And, you know, you got Elvis, you know, he's the king of rock and roll. And he goes, I don't have a title. 
So Charlie kind of left it for a while and he thought about it and thought about it. And then he thought, you know what? Bo is the DNA of rock and roll because he is so innovative and he thinks up these little gadgets and whimsical things to do to his guitars. So we actually had a police badge made up that says on it, the DNA of rock and roll. And it looks just like a police badge. And uh, Bo would put it on the top of his cowboy hat. And there were only two ever made. One has number one on it, and that's Bo's. And the other one has number two on it, and that's Charlie's. So they were best buddies. So the the uh, the, the third guitar that he made with the, with the MIDI player uh, was the Holy Grail. And they also named it the Bad Dude because it's badass. I mean, it looks badass, and it plays badass. And we actually had that guitar hanging in my booth at NAMM a few years back and tons of people got to sit and play it. Like it was in the oh, name. So it was very special. Yeah. So that's the kind of guy Charlie Tony is, you know, what, a, what a wild Lisa, what a wild story. And, <laughs> and just the catalog you have of like of, of the events inside your head. It's just, it's phenomenal. And, and I, you're, you bring the pages to life, like, you know, you, you reference your book Immortal Axes, And when you look at the pictures, you just bring everything that you spoke to your pictures, bring this all to life. Um, it's just phenomenal, phenomenally captured. Thank you. Um, I, I continue to, to be a, myself a bit of a fan in terms of some of the stories that you have in there. Um, the other one that caught my eye, uh, the Aldo Nova pages, um, yeah. you say in your book, and I found this interesting. I pulled up to fellow Canadian Aldo Nova's home. And I like the fact, by the way, that you said fellow Canadian, cause you associated with Canada there. Um, home in Montreal and knocked. Aldo greeted me at the door with his smiling blue eyes and it was an immediate heart connection. We went into his recording studio where he sat down and played a song for me on his Marcotti Harpeggi, an exotic instrument that is a cross between a piano and a dulcimer. So first, I'm, I'm like, you just knocked on Aldo Nova's door. Was it that easy? Hey, Aldo, Lisa here? Like, <laughs> you know, like, are we going to have people knocking on Aldo Nova's door here or what? You know, if you've never been to the NAM show, it's it's a really grueling show. It's four days long. It's freaking loud. Everyone's demoing guitars and basses and cymbals and drums and instruments all at once. And um, you're shouting, you know, you're I do interviews and we're all like huddling close to each other so that we can hear each other shouting. Um but the, and, and you think to yourself, I don't know if I can do this again another year, you know. But what happens is you end up meeting, even if you just meet like one cool person at NAM. but it's always more. You meet like lots of cool people at NAM. But you meet this one cool person who says, I can get you Aldo Nova's guitar. And I'm like, really? I'm Canadian. Yeah, I'd love that. So I met this guy named Benny Mallet. He loved what I was doing at NAM, and he just was intrigued with the whole thing. And he he sometimes guitar techs or, you know, he's a limo driver. He'll drive, you know, different artists around. And he had Aldo's number, and he's like, here, call Aldo. Just tell him I told you to call. So I call up, pick up the phone, and I call Aldo. I don't think he knew Benny's name from Adam. I really don't think that he recognized the name. But Aldo, first of all, he's Canadian. So he's just a nice guy. And he called me back. And I said, I'm Lisa Johnson, and I photograph guitars, and I photograph different people, and I would really love to photograph your collection or a few in your collection because he has some very special guitars, Aldo. 
and uh, and Benny had told me all about them. And so he said, yeah, you know, we could we could set that up, you know, just uh, let's when do you want to come? You know, so um, we ended up planning it. And uh, I went up to Montreal. I flew up just to go meet Aldo and photograph his guitars. And uh, in the same time, when I actually got there and it was actually happening, uh, Benny said, hey, you're in town. Why don't you shoot Voivod's guitars, um, uh, Piggy, uh, Dennis? uh, And and I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I ended up photographing those guitars, too. But I went to Aldo's first, and um, he was just such a sweetheart. Montreal was under construction. Didn't matter what freeway you were on, it was under construction. And I, I, we had agreed, I think I was going to show up there at 10 in the morning or 11 o'clock or something. So I'm in the morning traffic. I'm trying to get there. And my nav everywhere is telling me to go is a freaking roadblock. And so now I'm getting late and I hate that. So I'm speeding down a service road that I've already gone around three times and I'm speeding, trying to get off this off ramp and get to where I'm trying to go. And I get the cops uh. pulling me over and I'm like, geez. So I unroll the window and he goes, ma'am, you're speeding. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I said, but I'm not from here. I'm from Las Vegas and I'm trying to get to Aldo Nova's house. I've got a photo shoot with him. You can see I got my gear in here and I'm late now. And he goes, you're going to Aldo Nova's? I go, yes, I've got a photo shoot. And he goes, follow me. I'll get you there. No I'll get way. you off. <laughs> I'm like, thank you so much. Nice Canadian police officer. I think wow. that's the only time I've ever gotten off. And uh, he, he said, I'll tell you, I'll wave at you when when you're supposed to turn off the certain exit. Wow. He said, thank you so much. And he got me out of that horrible traffic and to the exit. And I got to Aldo's, Aldo's probably within 10 minutes of being late. Shout out to the policeman who helped, her get, who helped Lisa get to Aldo Nova's house. Montreal. And I didn't yeah, even Montreal. speak French. Mm-hmm. Did, he, did, he, was he, did he have a French accent or... I don't even remember. It was so long ago. I don't think he did, to be honest. I don't think he did. But Aldo, there he was, you know, he's, he's not that he's a small man, you know, I'm five, five, two. So he was just a little bit taller than me. And he just opened up the door and these big, beautiful blue eyes. I just won't forget. And his blonde hair. (laughs) And uh, we just hit it off right away. And he started playing that cool instrument. I'd never seen or heard before and playing his, you know, guitars and, then he's like, well, what do you want to use for a background? I'm like, well, I have backgrounds I brought with me. And he goes, well, I've got something. Because he wanted to show me what he had, you know. So he asked me what I had. And he brings out this bolt of fabric. He'd gotten a whole bolt of leopard skin looking fabric, which is a, a one of his motifs. You know, he always does the leopard skin thing. And uh, I'm like, that's fantastic. So we laid out that whole bolt of fabric. It was massive amounts of fabric. And we laid his beautiful awesome. uh, liberatory guitars on it one by one and photographed them. So you, you also wrote, and sticking with Aldo Nova here, you wrote um, that Aldo's signature Les Paul is his favorite guitar mm-hmm. and one of only 12 that was made. Yeah. Now, this, this, this is interesting. He has the first one. And Rick yeah. Nielsen of Cheap Trick owns the other 11. So according yeah. to Aldo, Rick keeps them in impeccable condition and he rarely takes them out of the case. 
why does he only have one and why does Rick have the other 11? Because Aldo designed this guitar. It's got um, a Les Paul body and it has an Explorer headstock, which was probably the first of its kind. Uh, that's not a regular guitar that Gibson makes. So it's very unique. And Rick found out about them probably through the Gibson factory, I'm guessing, and they only made 11. So Aldo got the first one. I mean, it was his design. It's his guitar. And I believe the serial number on it is 0001. And um, Rick wanted it. He wanted all of them. He wanted the whole collection. So, but Aldo's like, no, man, I'm not selling my number one. That's mine. So Rick got the the other 10 and Aldo has the one. Yeah. That's wild. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so look, there, I, I, I'm Actually, those numbers were wrong. There's, there's 12. So Rick has there's 11. And, and Rick has uh, 11. And Aldo has one. Yeah. I'm going to shoot Rick an email and see if he'll sell me one. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so look, Lisa, there's so many tidbits in this book. I, I could keep on, on, you know, going on with you with all the questions, um, you know, about all the different artists and the guitars you cover. But I, I want to know a couple of other things. I want to right. know if there was a guitar that you wanted to photograph or an artist, and maybe it just hasn't happened for one reason or another. And I know we talked about the Phoenix. We, we, we talked about that. Um, but maybe something that you're still hoping to get and why that guitar or, or why that artist, if it exists. Yeah. Well, there's two that are breaking my heart right now. Um, Angus Young's Back in Black, Gibson SG, I want in the worst way. I mean, ACDC was the Back in Black tour was my third concert. I think I was 14 and I never looked back. I, I was that and still, you know, whenever I turn on ACDC, the, it's a, an electrifying thrill. I love their riffs. I love the beat of the music. I love the lyrics. It, you know, it's dirty and nasty and, you know, it's it's grungy and it's it just is the epitome of rock and roll for me. I mean, when I was 14, it just made such a massive impression on me. I mean, we used to go home at, I, I don't know if I can talk about this on the radio, but I, we'd go home. I would, I got a D in math because I'd go home at lunchtime, my girlfriend, Barb Rowe from Sweden and I, and we'd turn on back and, you know, back, you know, uh, uh, you know, hearing that bell ringing at the beginning and then, you know, we'd be like smoking a spliff on the side, you know, and then we'd go back to to, to math class. Uh, so no wonder I got a D, but we were just we just loved ACDC. And um, to to I've probably requested Angus's guitar more than anybody at least 10 times and they just don't respond. Hmm. Um and so then I finally met somebody who is in Australia, who has a record uh, guitar store, and he got to know Angus's cousin, who eventually got a copy of my book. I sent two, one for the cousin, one for Angus, and he delivered it, hand delivered it to Angus, and Angus said no, because he said it might conflict with a, another project. So... That's uh, my heart is the hit in my stomach about that. Um, But who knows? I mean, maybe someday I'll go to Australia and I'll get a hold of the cousin and the cousin will say, hey, Angus, Lisa's in town. Remember that chick with the book, you know? Come on over. Somehow at times that's how it happens. They go, oh, yeah, that conflict of, you know, that didn't happen. Yeah, tell her to come over, you know? So I still am hopeful there. The other one 
is Mark Knopfler. I mean, I Sultans of Swing is one of the all time mm-hmm. greatest uh, guitar solos of all time for me. And um, Communique and Tunnel of Love and making movies and all those songs. I mean, they make me cry. I mean, they, they bring me back to summers in Penticton, BC and hanging out with my friends and also like my parents divorced and feeling heartache and, you know, your first loves too. You know, I had my first boyfriends, serious boyfriends. And I just, I just love Mark Knopfler's material. And I want that red strat that he used on Sultans of Swing. And I don't even know if he still has it, you know, <laughs> I, probably he does, um, is is my guess. Um, and they just, and I even know my girlfriend is friends with Mark Knopfler's buddy's wife. Okay. So we get a book to her and she actually knows the husband too. And he takes the book, he, you know, he goes for tea with Mark and he goes to car, car they get into cars together and whatever. And so he hand delivers the book to Mark and I have this handwritten note in there, beautiful that references songs. And it's like, you know, a killer little note, not long and nope, no No response. response. And I followed up, I followed up. um, I had my publicist actually follow up for shooting for this book. And they just said, they said, no, not for Mark. Angus and Mark, if you're out there, you want to be part of this. You want to be part of Lisa's work. Yeah. Yeah, that would make them. my my whole. I would be complete if I could have those two. <laughs> but there's still more, you know. There's still many there more. Yeah. There's Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know. There's Roy Buchanan. Um, there's there's uh, Adam Jones from Tool. I would love to have. Um, there's tons of country guys, Waylon right. Jennings, and um, you know I have Johnny Cash. I've got Willie Nelsons in this book. Yeah, uh, Waylon Willie Jennings would be really cool too. Yeah, yeah. Waylon would be amazing. Yeah. I don't have Bob Marley. You know, there's there's still a lot uh, to to have. So Prince, you know, those those cloud guitars would be really cool, or his Mad Cat Telly, I would love to have. Um, I'm not done yet. You know, my work is not over. That's good. I, and I'm going to ask you something about that in a. And you know, we only have a few more questions to go here. I'm going to hold off and ask you something about that in a bit. Do you have a, a favorite photo shoot of a guitar where it was your favorite? not just because of the guitar photos, but, and, and, you know, you've shared with us some experiences and conversations, et cetera, maybe a combination of the artist, the guitar, the story you Mm -hmm. have, like with all the work that you've done, is there one that you go, man, I really like that was one of my favorites. One of my favorites in this book is Dave Grohl. You know, Dave Grohl, he of course was um, the drummer for Nirvana, but while he was with Nirvana, he was still writing Foo Fighters stuff. I mean, he was writing, he had a lot of material when when uh, Kurt died. He already had a ton of Foo's material, and he's in a phenomenal guitar player on top of being a phenomenal drummer. So um, I was able to capture um, his collection of Trini Lopez Gibson guitars, which are very unique guitars themselves as well, uh, with the diamond um you know, F holes, they're not F holes, they're diamonds, you know, Um, and they're beautiful guitars. And um, there's another photographer in Los Angeles, whose name is Lisa Johnson. She's a blonde. 
as yeah. well. And she photographs rock bands. She photographed Nirvana on the bed, that historical shot where they're on the bed. And so uh, she she knew Nirvana. She knew Dave from that shoot before. So when I put in the request to photograph Dave's guitars, he's like, they wrote back and they go, why are you being so formal? Yeah, of course you can come over and photograph the guitar. I'm like, uh, this is not that Lisa Johnson. <laughs> it's this Lisa Johnson. I'm Lisa S. Johnson. That's right. why I put my <laughs> Suzanne in there. And um, so they said yes anyway. So I, I went over and I took Lisa Johnson with me. So the two <laughs> of us went and they, they were saying, oh, wow, it's so cool. We have two Lisa Johnsons in the house. So we did the shoot together. They were they, She was there with my buddy Lon Friend, who is a veteran rock journalist. Uh, he was the editor of Rip magazine back in the 80s. And he put every band on the cover, including Nirvana. And he hired Lisa Johnson to cut, to shoot that that image of Nirvana on the bed. So he's the one who actually introduced me to Lisa Johnson. And uh, we've since developed a, a friendship. And That's cool. The, the three of us were there doing that shoot. And I, I shot all the guitars in a circle and on these beautiful rugs. And then I shot his number one, which is the blue, the Pelham blue, uh, Trini Lopez on this rug. And I didn't realize it at the time because you're in the heat of the moment. You know, you, you don't you can't be there all day. You know, you just you got to get the get in and get out and get the job done. And they were very friendly and everything. But still, you can't overstay. Yeah. So um, I'm not like really looking at these pieces of tape that are on the rug. I don't even think I noticed the pieces of tape when I was taking the photograph of it. I get home and I'm editing the pictures and you can see this in the book, The Immortal Axes. There's the guitar laying on the rug exactly where the drum kit is normally placed and they have the black tape on the floor to on the rug to mark where they put everything and you can see like snare drum and you know all the the, the drum parts on this tape. And I thought that was just so cool and how that magically happened because he was the drummer for yeah. Nirvana, but I'm photographing his guitar for the Foo Fighters. Yeah, like there's just a, an organic element to that, you know? Yeah, like, we're not planned at all. That's cool. Another great story. Um, so you, I, when we started talking, you, I, you know, I said, hey, you're touring the book. Are you, are you touring anymore? Like, are you doing more uh, tours with this book? Well, I just came back from being in Canada uh, so right now we're going into the holidays. So that's why I did it in, in September, October in Canada, made a few stops. Um, and um, now we're still doing interviews as part of that, like okay. with you as part of that for the holiday season, just to to bring it to the forefront of people's memories if yeah. they've forgotten or didn't hear about it. Because we didn't really do any press in Canada when the book came out, which is the book's actually been out for a year. It came out in September, but it just the year has gone by so fast. It seems like it just came out to me. It's still so fresh and new and beautiful. I mean, we printed 10,000 copies. The publisher went all in all out printed 10,000 copies. And the last report I had, we'd already sold almost 6,000 of those. So um, I wanted to work with, with Eric to, to do yeah. this Canadian press so that we can get another 4,000 copies sold this holiday season. Yeah. And we're going to have the, we're going to have the links on the book in the, in the notes. And we're going to share that with everybody. Now, are you going to do more books? Like, you know, a couple of questions ago, we, you kind of said, Hey, I'm not done. Um, and I was going to say, are there any, you know, guitars left for you to photograph? You're, yeah. you're on a guitar tear, or, I mean, you could always photograph mine. Like I'm, I'm open hey. and I'm an easy phone call, <laughs> you know, I'm joking aside. Um, are you moving on to any other instruments maybe too, or? Uh, I've thought about it and it's in the back of my mind. Um, I have a concept for a book that would incorporate 
the guitar along with some other instruments as mm-hmm. well. I've always been intrigued about how you see often see the guitar player uh, and bass player and even the rhythm player. They always turn toward the drummer, you know, and they're playing with the drummer because either they need the drummer to get them back in in step, um, or they're they're you know they're jamming with the drummer. And I I find that so interesting when they do it um, that they turn away from the crowd and they turn toward the heartbeat of the band. And so I've thought about trying to do some kind of concept where I'm incorporating those instruments. Um, And, you know, like I just was up there in Canada with Randy Bachman got that guitar back, you know, his 1957 Gretsch that was stolen out of his hotel room about almost 50 years ago. And he got it back and he's like, you got to come up here and photograph this guitar. He actually invited me to go to Japan where he did the exchange with the guy who found it. And I already had another plan and I couldn't go to Japan. So he said, well, you come up to Labor Day weekend and I'm going to be playing that guitar for the first time because it's never leaving my house again unless I can hand carry it to the gig and back. So that was the case. So he uh, was playing it and I, I went up there and photographed it. So that really is the first guitar shoot for the third book wow. whatever it's going to be and then um i'm i'm working also with the hard rock international on some other gems like the fool eric clapton's the fool that todd rundgren also had and um that amazing eb bass that mountain had that you, they used and uh uh, some couple of Prince Cloud guitars and oh, a, wow. cool. a Johnny Cash Guild that has the handwritten uh, he wrote when the Sharpie on the front, uh, the I Walk the Line chorus and mm. uh, Bob Marley's 12 string is there and a Jimi Hendrix burned up guitar, Strat, Black Strat is there and Kirk Hammett's Ouija board uh, Fender is there. I mean, there's gems, gems, gems. Uh, a, a little parlor guitar, Washburn, that Jimi Hendrix used on the opening riff of All Along the Watchtower is there. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got access, so I'm going to keep going. Awesome. So we got we got more coming from Lisa S. Johnson on the books. Lisa, is there anything that you'd like to leave us? I've, I've bombarded you with questions and stories. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Oh, you've asked me so many good questions. Yeah. It's really been enjoyable chatting with you. Um, just, you know, if you're looking for a nice holiday gift that's for the guitar lover in your life or some music lover in your life, uh, just go to Amazon.ca. You know, in Canada, um, it's available online on Amazon. And if anyone would like to have a specially signed book, then just send me a direct message on my Instagram account or Facebook account. And I have these custom made little stickers that have the book cover art, which is a skull that's embellished with all kinds of guitar motifs, Gibson SG and the eyes are, are the diamond inlay from the Gibson guitar headstock. And there's a, the nose is an upside down flying V and it's, it's really cool to just to stare at the, at the book cover for a while to see what's beautiful. in there. It's a beautiful book cover, by the way. Beautiful. And it's got gold leaf on the front, so it sparkles gold and silver. So it's really kind of sparkly and it looks beautiful. Um, So I have these cool little signature plates that I made that have the book cover art on it. And then there's a little white block where I can sign my name so I can write to Joe, you know, Lisa S. Johnson on there. So if you just send me a direct message, I'd be happy to to send you one of those signed signature plates with along with a custom guitar pick that I include. And uh, my social media is at L S J 
rock photos. That's my Instagram L S J like Lisa, Suzanne Johnson, L S J rock photos. That's my Instagram. You can send me a direct message there. And also Facebook as well is uh, the same L S J rock photos or 108 rockstar guitars. It'll come up either way. I will make sure that all of that is in the podcast notes as well, Lisa. And we're going to, we're going to share that with everybody. Thank you so much for chatting with us about your book and more relaxes, sharing some of your personal experiences with the artists who own them, their friends, their family members who may have shared them with you. I will have all of your contact information in the podcast notes. So you can look at getting your own copy of Immortal Axes. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you, Guido. Such a pleasure talking to you. I hope I get to meet you in person one day in Toronto. For sure. Me too. What a great segment with Lisa S. Johnson and her book, Immortal Axes. Now, let's get to some music and Jazz Robertson with Hurricane. I'm running out of places I know we're safe to hide He's in and out in phases Can't seem to make up his mind Each time I think I'm healing He's back to be your friend This pattern's gonna break me Can't go through this all again Don't look, react He's only waiting for it I won't go back I've come too far to risk it I'm boarding all the windows Climbing up to higher ground His hurricane won't hit me this time He's the one that'll drown No room for sympathy You'll end up in his arms I'm finally breaking free Riding the eye of the storm One forward, two feet backwards He pulls me in again Keep losing all my traction, fighting feelings, all regret. He's broken, lost, and lonely, but that's not mine to fix. I've gotta get my head right, slipping into old mistakes. Don't look, react, he's only waiting for it. I won't go back, I've come too far to risk it. I'm boarding all the windows, climbing up to higher ground. His hurricane will for this month jazz robertson with her song hurricane we'll have a little bit more from her a little bit later on in the show now before we get to our next guest kevin cassidy let's hear from one of our friends of the podcast 
Recipes at My Table is a work of family, love of food, and sharing of stories. The stories keep the memories alive and make every day a party in my kitchen. Join me for the sharing of traditional Italian recipes and so much more. Visit me at www.recipesatmytable.com. I would like to welcome to the show the man behind some of the most daring, stupendous, wild, dangerous, and exciting scenes you've seen on the big screen. You've cheered him in movies like The Longest Yard, Black Panther, Avengers, Captain America, Guardians of the Galaxy, and many more. He talks stunts in life in his new book, Falling Down to Find Myself. Here with us today is Kevin Cassidy. Kevin, welcome to The Monthly Social. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm glad to, glad to have you here. I'm so excited. The, the book is, is, uh, is an exciting series of tales and, and ups and downs, and so I'm, I'm excited for the audience to, to hear that, too. Um, I, the good news here, look, I, I'm not going to ask you to do any stunts. I'll, it might be hard on Zoom, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I want to establish some foundations, right? I always like to, to say, hey, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And I, I think you were born in Long Island, New York. You spent a, a decade there, uh, and then you headed to North Carolina. So tell us a little bit about growing up New York and then transition to, to Carolina. Well, I, I've done a lot in, in a short period of time. My mom was born and raised in Queens. Dad born and raised in Brooklyn. All my uncles were Irish, Italian cops in the city, uh, we moved to Long Island when I was born with all my cousins and everyone was in Queens and Brooklyn. So a lot of time in the city. And then at 10 years old, I, we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, farm town back then. And uh, a little bit of a culture shock. Uh, so I like to say I'm a, I'm a northerner raised in the South. So I'm a little more patient New Yorker, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm a hybrid because I was raised by you know New Yorkers and I lived a decade there and I had a foundation there and when I moved down, I, I had, I was going through speech therapy and I was, you know, um, <clears throat> had issues with that. But randomly, I'm the only person that picked up the Southern accent. And like the first year I went from talking like this, get out of here, move over to how y'all doing? Like I, it hit me. I was only 10. We would go back for holidays and they wouldn't let me eat inside. Like, let the redneck outside. What are you doing here? So uh, it was uh, definitely a bit of a culture shock, but then all in good fun with my family. <laughs> So yeah, I got it. I got it. And I don't want to get anybody angry who's listening. I, I don't mean anything by this, but you, you threw in Irish, Italian, and then patient. And I don't know if those three things go together. <laughs> that's that's what the, the South helped me with that. Yeah. yeah calmed you down, slowed everything right. down. Listen, um, talking about uh, growing up and you didn't waste any time in your new book, falling down to find myself talking about a, a birth defect. And you just, you just said, Hey, you know, I, I did some speech therapy and whatnot. That determined the, the determination of that defect was, I, I believe, a cleft palate. Um, what made you start there in the book? I mean, you, you're right off the bat, like you're establishing trust with the readers right off the get go. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really good to be vulnerable. You, you, you can, hey, here's a book about how I was stuntman. That's really cool. Uh, you can just be on the surface for that. But that's not going to get, not going to help anybody. So it's, uh, I call, I'm calling it a philosophical memoir. It's the story of my life and my life starts there. And, uh, a lot of things I dealt with with my birth defect and all the surgeries and uh, speech impediment and all that, it kind of made me who I am and then helped build the foundation of my uh, my confidence to end up going to Hollywood and then at the end of the day leaving Hollywood to be a family man and uh, kind of really established you know, a core of who I am, which is I mean, uh, where you got to start, right, if you're writing a book. 
Yeah. And you know, that's, as I was starting to read, um, I just, I just made that instant connection. Right. Cause then I started thinking of all the things that, Hey, you know, I'm not perfect in these other ways. And do I approach life this way? Was I, was I ready to expose some of my own disabilities or my vulnerabilities? Right. So, um, I just thought that was a, a, an interesting place to start. And, and if other readers experience what I did, uh, they're going to get drawn into it. Um, I was curious, you know, was it hard to overcome being born with a, a cleft palate in terms of, I mean, you, you're right now, I look at you and you go, lie, self-confidence, all the things you did. But at the time, were you treated differently by others? You made a reference in, in the book uh, to, uh, I don't know if you got called this, a, a rat boy. Um, is, is the birth defect one of the things that contributes to finding yourself? It is. I mean, a lot of people, you, know, you see Marcus Aurelius or these old stoic philosophers, like, if you don't go through hardships, you never know who you are. And luckily, I went through hardships in the day I was born. So uh went through the teasing and the bullying, and my nickname in junior high was Rat Boy. Some people didn't even know my real name. They just called me Rat Boy because uh, I only had you know two teeth in the front and a, a mushed-down nose. And, uh, and it wasn't all completely negative i learned to answer to it and hmm. some people are like oh i didn't even think that was bad i'm sorry years later so it ended up being um i i think i'm lucky that it was never a transition for me i was from day one on the earth i had a birth defect i had surgeries i, I battled it so i didn't know anything different so it was always something i just kind of like brought my lunch pail to work and you know figure it out or if I maybe if I was like ten or eleven and something happened to me and then I had some kind of challenge, it would be harder to transition. But because it was always there, it was always something I dealt with. It was always something I couldn't hide from. It was literally on my face and how I talked. There was no like kind of like pretend you're not that. <laughs> so I had to tackle it head on, and and doing that, you, you know, laugh or cry or figure out a way to be happy. And again, this was day one. That was my you know to, on my to do list. So I kind of got past that and got some emotional hurdles earlier in life and other people, you know, still battle with today that I was able to cross off and, and, and deal with at a, at a young age. Did you, as a young, as a young boy, did you question it? Like, did you go, you know, like I, you say, well, I didn't have a transition. Um, you always just dealt with it from day one. Um, uh, did you question it? Yeah. You always, and that's part of adolescence. You're always questioning everything. You're trying to find out where the line is, where even if you're not having a birth defect or a speech impediment or just a normal, you know, 12 year old kid, does this girl like me? Does she not like me? That guy cool. You're always right. finding out where the line is. And that's part of adolescence. I just had another level of where the line was. Uh, so you question it a little bit, but uh, I say it wasn't my whole day. I wasn't always bullied. It wasn't always teased. It was always there. A little bit, it was always, right. you know, it was maybe 25% of every one of my, of my day. And then the rest of the day, I had good friends. And I played sports and right my on. parents never, to this day, my mom still, you know, I never knew you were getting bullied. <laughs> like, mom, I didn't have a face. I came home with black eyes every day. Uh, not every day. And she I had no idea. I'm like, well, pros and cons. So she never gave me any, uh, never treated me any different, held me to a higher standard. There was no currency in being a victim or pitying yourself. You know, figure it out and you can be happy or sad. You want to be happy. So, but you question it a little bit, but yeah, I was a very good athlete and I had um, physical outlets. I played football and even getting in fights. And I was, I was, you know, a typical guy. I didn't even get that out. And then I did a lot of writing and uh, I was kind of sensitive on that side of it. So I kind of balanced me out a little bit. Looking back on it, it's easier to say than going through it. Sure. You, 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 of course you question it and, 
but I had a good support system, even though they weren't supporting me at the time. They're like, no, no one cares. (laughs) Figure it out. And I think it's important. I think you talked about, you know, just in the, in the regular day of anybody's life, right. Um, how, how things are, but it's, I think it's important for kids to hear that and to, to, to be able to relate to that. And you talked about, Hey, um, wouldn't mind getting in a, in a fight or, or anything like that, but you find yourself, I'm going to, I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. You find yourself at LRU, you're 19 years old, you're on a scholarship, you're playing baseball and football. Like you said, Hey, I'm athletic, right? I got these other t- skills and talents. You have an incident with your coach and, and your coach threatens to take away your scholarship as the two of you battle over, I guess, the results of a, of a lost game. You try to keep your cool, I understand, but uh, you know you have a breaking point. And and I'm I'm giving tidbits here. I don't want to give too much away of the book because I think there's um, there's more to the story that I want folks to digest and, and read. But given that conflict um, and what you know, what does Kevin today tell 19 year old Kevin when it comes to the confrontation or maybe any confrontation? Yeah, uh, it's not all about you. Take a deep breath. Get your ego out of the way. Um, I, I was battling, you know, emotionally a lot of pent up things. And I was a guy that was, I could take being bullied and I could take it, take it, take it, laugh about it or fight to the death. There was no in between. It was either I'm fine or all in. And that's kind of how I dealt with a lot of stuff in my life. And, um, didn't have that middle ground a little bit, that de-escalation ability because when I was, I tried it earlier and I had a speech impediment. So I would try to talk somebody down. They would just make fun of how I talked and they would just get worse and worse and worse. So I figured out either leave it alone or we're going all the way in on it. And that's kind of how it was my default. And then in that situation, I tried to leave it alone. I walked away and like, I can't do it. And <clears throat> ended up pulling me all in. And, uh, I, I would tell my younger self, Hey, there is that middle ground. There is, you know, just, be the bigger man, take the loss. You know, it's not that big of a deal. You're not, you're not actually in danger. You're not protecting your family. Right. It's, 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 it's small potatoes here. Just let the guy be wrong and, and then yell at you and, and live, live to play another day. Uh, easier said than done when you're 19 year old <laughs> full of anger. But, uh, uh <laughs> I was going to say, would your, would your younger self listen? <laughs> uh, yeah, dep- he would have to some people, not to many people. I, yeah. I was a big, big on respect. And if yeah. a guy who I really respected, I, I you know, may have listened or may, may have not 50, 50. <laughs> so Kevin, that's not the last time that you faced adversity. Um, you, you went through a potential life altering experience, uh, in court you were on alleged charges of assault and battery of a law enforcement officer with, I guess, intent to kill. Again, I'm not going to give away the story here. Uh, readers, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get the details on this, but I want to, I want to ask this. How does that experience change your outlook on life at the moment? Because that's not you getting an argument with a coach. That's, that's life altering. Yeah. And, and I said to this day, if I walk out of a, a building and I see two good friends of mine getting choked out and in trouble, I'm going to help them. I, I don't regret, I regret the first situation. I could have handled it better, but the second situation, I, I don't know if I react any different. I have the ability to help some people and the physical altercation. And I was just pushing and separating. And, and you know, so my physical actions, I, I still stand behind, you know, but what it taught me and what you pull back from it is, Life could change in the drop of a hat. I mean, can't take anything for, for granted. And when it does change, you have another choice to make. Okay, this is your new life. They they slammed the jail cell on me and like, 
You're going to be here for five years. You're facing 25 to life. You're not going to see any best case five years you're here. And I'm in college. I mean, I guess this is my new life. Deal with it or deal with it. There's no option. You're a jail cell. There's nothing but time. And so luckily I wasn't there for five years. Had I been, maybe my mentality would have shifted, but I was able to come out with a renewed sense of self after that uh, because you really just have a lot of internal reflection time. And when you're sitting in a jail cell thinking that you'd be there for a while. Is it silly of me to ask if you were scared? No, yeah, I was scared. I was scared of the unknown, scared of confused. I was very confused at first. Um, and I was in the E block, which is what the, 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 the hardened criminals were. But it was jail, not prison. So people still had something to lose. So these people were like awaiting their sentences, awaiting there. There's all the murder and stuff like that in there. But they still had hope that they weren't going to prison. Right. So it wasn't as, you know, as a TV show. It was still pretty rough. It was still pretty a scary, you know, environment. But it wasn't uh, as scary as like what movies you would see. I'm a big guy and people kind of, you know, leave me alone a little bit. But right. it was it was confusing scary lonely um and by the time the confusion wore off then the scary kind of i I was more confused and scared at first which was probably good and then by the time the confusion wore off i had been there for three four days and i kind of got to lay the land and was able to not not be as scared but yeah for sure um folks you got it folks got to read the conclusion of that and and just the transition of that uh good part of the book um, we explored some experiences now where you've overcome health and, and you've overcome some life challenges. At some point, you go, I'm going to be a stuntman. What what brings you to that point? What what uh, what events? <laughs> I, I, I fell into it, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was I played a little bit of minor league baseball. I was, uh, lucky enough to still sign the contract and play low-level minor league ball. Uh, after that, I went to uh, a teacher in Baltimore. And uh, followed my passion for mentorships and teaching, and I was going to do that. And I, I we saw a sport on TV called slam ball. It was like full contact basketball with trampoline. It was on TV for a couple of years. It was it was super legit. The Pat Croce, who owned the Philadelphia 76ers, was the owner of the league. Like Shaq was one of our commentators. Kobe Bryant's dad was one of our coaches. Xavier McDaniel, NBA All Star player, was one of our coaches. So it's pretty legit, you know, league. And um, I live in Baltimore, one of my best friends from Philly, and they have a nationwide tryout for it. They're like, hey, next weekend we're going to Philly to try out for that slam ball sport we've been watching. I'm like, what? We're not doing that. You know, all my family's in Philly. We're going to Philly for the weekend. So we kind of went as a goof to try out. And my buddy went to Temple. The tryout was at Temple's University's gym, basketball court. And I, I, I made it. I, I got invited to LA for the next round of the tryout. And uh, I, was, I was a teacher at the time. So I told my principal, hey, listen, I'm not burning this bridge. I got a good job. I love my students. I'm not, but here's what's in front of me. I can go to LA for this tryout. I can get cut any day, come home, or I can make it and be there for three, four months. Uh, but I'm not going to burn that. Oh, you always have a job here. So long story longer, I went to LA and made that team, made that league, was uh, played slam ball, was on TV, uh, met some people who were stunt people in that world, uh, looking for something to do in between. While the next year of slam ball was going to come, that never ended up happening. And uh, slept on some couches, had no money. And I went to another tryout for the movie The Longest Yard with some connections I had from guys with slam ball. And shouldn't have made that team either. Somehow I just 
kept not getting cut and uh, I made it into that movie. Got my sad card and learned a lot about the ins and outs of movies and stunt work and uh, what to do, who, how, where to go. Eh, made a lot of money doing this movie. Met Adam Sandler and all these famous people. I'm going to ride this wave as long as it takes, and I'll go back to Baltimore and teach. Figured it'd be another year. You know, 18 years later, I'm looking for an escape out of that world. <laughs> so Longest Yard was your, your breakout? It was my first movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you talked about uh, sleeping on couches. In your book, you wrote... I arrived in Baltimore penniless, homeless, and jobless. <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> right? Um, after you make it as a stuntman, and, and you, you just said, hey, started making some money, made a lot of money. You're obviously in a different place now, too. When you look back at that moment where you said, I, I'm penniless, homeless, and jobless, did you think at that point, like, did you think I'm going to persevere? Like, I'm, I'm going to make it out of this? And, and um, did you think then, like, that you'd be where you got to? I never really doubted. I would always figure it out. I was, I had my degree. I could always go back to teaching. I could do baseball camps and baseball lessons. I had all these different business plans and a lot of that stuff was on hold while I was waiting for Slam Ball to call me back. So I couldn't just start that because I would have to leave it again. So that penniless, homeless, I was in a limbo where I can't really pursue anything else while I wait for this. And when push came to shove, okay, I got to get a job. I'll go back to teaching. I'll start a baseball camp. I always knew, I always had confidence that I'd figure it out and I'll be all right. Meaning I'd probably make 50 grand a year and have a little crappy apartment and be happy the rest of my life. I was completely content and that would have been great. Um, but then we're going to LA and then the first movie, you make some money, put it in the bank. Then you don't work again for like four or five months. There's none of the movie. You have to figure out it's all word of mouth. It's all uh, reputation based. There's no agents, no manager. You got to figure that game out. So then I was in L.A., and that money ran out, and I started, I was bartending, bouncing, doing uh, private baseball lessons, back to penniless, but I had a home, I had an apartment this time at least, until I grinded out the to the stunt world. And you see that, though. Like, okay, this stunt guy I know, he makes half a million dollars a year. Okay, I can get there. I see the path there. It's a little cleaner than I could see, you know, when I was in Baltimore. If I start this business or whatever, so it was, a, it was easier. Oh, man, if I can get there, I'm just as good as he is. That'd be pretty cool if I made that much money. <laughs> uh, again, wasn't all money motivated. I liked the job. I liked the career. I've been just as happy back in Baltimore teaching, living in an apartment probably, but had a pretty had a pretty good run. So it's it's interesting because you, you gave me a lot there and, and you, you answered some questions I was going to ask anyways, which I'm, yeah, I'm glad, so. right? Because you put, no, no, it, you put it all together for me because I was going to say to you, well, how hard was it for you to break into the industry? And, it, and at first you kind of made it sound like, well, you know, yeah, this thing happened and I knew a couple of people and boom, and but not every, like, it's just, it was, it was circumstantial, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't a plan and you didn't, it just happened, right? Um can anyone be a stuntman? And when I ask you this question, can anyone be a stuntman? It, there's a physical part and there's other parts to this. Can anyone be a stuntman or do you have to have a certain mindset? Uh, you have a certain mindset, but more people than you think can be a stuntman can be a stuntman. There are people who aren't as physically talented as me who find a different little niche. Just show up on time, work hard, be a good person. That whole character is really huge in the second community because it's all word of mouth. It's all uh, start from scratch and get one job, do a good job, get another job. Be honest with your abilities. Hey, can you do a backflip on a motorcycle? Nope. Call somebody else. Can't do that. If I say yes, I got to show up tomorrow and do it. And guess what? I'm going to kill myself and nobody wins. And, and I'm, I'm going to burn my reputation and everything. So if you're just, 
if you start slow and you put in the time and energy and you keep showing up in a positive way and build your skills, you'll be, you might not be the doubling the main guy in Marvel, but you'll be the guy, you know, the military guy who comes in for a week and gets blown up and gets another job. And you can make a career out, out of it if you just keep showing up in a positive way. Um, but to be like a, a super high end established main guy you gotta bring a lot of talent with you as well has it changed a little bit now you said earlier well look this industry there were no agents you kind of had to make your way has it started to change a little bit no that's still the same it's all word of mouth world Mm -hmm. what's changed is i was a throwback i was a jack of all trades master of none i was really good at football baseball basketball i'm a good athlete i learned how to do fights i can learn everything to a pretty high level and then you kind of peak with it i'm a really good car driver of stunts but there are guys who grew up driving cars with NASCAR parents. They were way better. They grew up drifting when they were 10. I'm never going to get that good. I'm never, I'm a good fighter, but I'm never going to be as good as Jackie Chan or these guys who that's what their specialty was uh, coming into the business. So it's turned into more specialized. So many guys are so good at one thing that it's hard to break in unless you have a really something that really stands like Red Bull skydivers and the world, like every X Games motocross guy. Like, these guys are bringing some like, unbelievable talent to one specific thing where I was coming good at everything and then maybe harder to, to break in with that base now because everything becoming a little more specialized as uh, you know, everything gets pushed up. So I was telling my kids um, about this chat that I'm going to have with you and, and you kind of, you said, you know, you talked about a backflip on a motorcycle. One of my youngest uh, kids says to me, does a stuntman get hurt? And I said, yeah, I, I think they do. So she yeah. retorts back to me and she says, why would they do a job where they're going to get hurt? <laughs> right. So were you, were you ever worried about getting hurt? Did, like, did you, um, you know, you're being hired to do something physical that the, that the star actor of the show is, you know, doesn't, isn't going to do. Um, but did you ever worry about that or did it ever happen or? Yeah, you always worry when, when you're younger, you worry less and you put yourself out there and you're probably safer because of it. And you get older, you're like, oh, I don't know about this one. That's, that's usually when injuries start happening. Uh, but it's a, it's a calculated risk. We call it controlled chaos. If, if you can do it once, it's an accident. If you can do it five times in a row, it's a stunt. So, uh, as, as a, if I'm a coordinator and I'm hiring the stunt people, I got to hire you to fall down the stairs. Well, you're going to fall down the stairs. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get bruised. But you have to do it four or five times in a row. And if you can't do it four or five times in a row, you're not a good stunt guy. I can't hire you. You need different camera angles. They didn't get it right. There was some dialogue attached to it. Hey, you got to do the stair fall again. All right. Every time I do it, you get paid. So good for you. But you have to be able to do it and not get hurt. Take your bruises. We, I used to say being bruised is better than being broken. I can work through a bruise. I can't work through a broken arm. So bruise is better than broken. So if you get if you're known for like getting broken and can't you can't work if you have a broken arm and you're gonna make any money if you if you can't can't work and I can't hire you if you if you can't work. So everyone gets dinged up, but the guys who are injury prone don't really last because and but you also have to put yourself in a situation to succeed. Well, if I got if I got called to do a motorcycle scene, that's not my specialty. If I say yes, guess what? My my risk of injury gets shot through the roof because that's not my that's not my specialty. Football, yeah, I can give football tackles all day long. You might get hurt there, but you're in your wheelhouse. Fights and stuff like that. So you take jobs that put you in the best position to succeed in your little specialty, and then you start branching out, getting a little better, getting a little better. So you know, those phone calls come. Hey, can you drive a car? Yep, I can drive a car now. A year ago, I had to say no, but now I've worked enough or I'm good enough, I can drive that car now. 
So you you have to do that back work to put yourself in a situation where you're not getting your leg broken because you you can't work with a broken leg and if you don't work you don't eat. <laughs> How do you? Like, I'm just trying to imagine. You know, like I, I'm going down that set of stairs four or five times. How do you prepare to be a stuntman and do that type of work? Like, from a mental health perspective, is there residual effect? Like, at some point, like whether it's positive or negative, before or after, like. I, I don't know how I like I'm trying to envision how I mean maybe because I don't do it right but yeah. what's the what's the mental side of that so I mean you have to a lot of people can do it really good one time and like oh man that hurt uh, do it again the same way uh, you kind of flinch and you know you have to you have to just dumb yourself down enough to do it the second time as good as you do it the first time but you've trained on it and we have we we prep it so, okay here are the stairs if I'm the stunt coordinator. The big thing with stair falls is railings. You might get a hand or a leg caught in the railing, and that's when things get broken. So as a coordinator, I said, listen, these railings are too thick. We need to put fake things in these railings, like make them rubber railings. So if he does get a leg caught in there, it'll just be rubber and it won't be as bad. We can pad some of the stairs, or sometimes they can't. You got to take it. Uh, if I had a tank top and shorts on, but hey, can we have that after wear long sleeve shirt so we can get elbow pads on the sun guy? You kind of set it up before you actually do the stunt, as a coordinator, you know, to protect your guys. But as the guy, you, every day you, you train, you go to gymnastic studios, you learn how to fall, you do rolls, you do flat backs, you train your body to fall in the correct way. And uh, there's one stunt a buddy of mine did. It was at um, Die Hard, Die Hard with the Vengeance, I think. He was tied to a chair and it kicked him down the stairs. And that one, you'd be like, uh, Good luck, uh, but the stairs were padded, and they, they did it a couple of different takes. And they, but that one you can't do a whole lot. You just tuck your chin and hope for the best. But other ones, you put yourself in position to, to roll right, to keep your eye open, and and be able to do it three or four more times. So there's a physical preparation, a mental preparation, and you work with a team, a coordinator, a special effects guy. Hey, can we only do? We'll do the first part, then we'll cut to the bottom part because your stairs are there's 90 stairs. We're not doing 90 stair fall. You don't have time for that. So we'll do a little bit, and we'll put pads, we'll catch them, then we'll do the end. We'll do two different shots. It'll look great on film. Everyone's happy. Yeah, so you, you, it's a team that kind of builds around the, the, the best scenario to put you in the best situation and not get hurt. But then at the end of the day, you got to run down the stairs, jump down the stairs. I, you know, this is the, when, when folks hear this show, this is an audio show. And we're, we're seeing each other right now because this is how we uh-huh. record it. But I'm like, I'm turtling here, folks. <laughs> like, <laughs> as he's telling me, like, you know, the guy with the tied to the chair and some of this, like, I'm cringing and turtling and, and you can't see that. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Not for everybody, for sure. Um, you've been on some iconic movie sets uh, doing this, this type of work. Was there ever a stunt that you had to do that for yourself didn't go as planned or, or where you suffered an unexpected injury? And, you know, what happened? How'd you come back from that? Or what was the result? There's a couple that, uh, one's a pretty funny story that uh, I thought of myself in a situation to see and I just ruined, completely ruined the shot. <laughs> it cost a movie of millions of dollars, uh, a lot of money. Uh, didn't get hurt, but probably should have got hurt. Got knocked, got knocked out, woke up and did it again. So I guess kind of getting hurt, but <laughs> um, uh, and then there's another one where I was doubling a guy and they're doing sword fighting and normal, just kind of like athletic stunts up my alley. And then they had a horse scene where I had to do stuff with horses, which is not up my alley. And I had to like do a sword fight with a guy on a horse, and the horse is behind me. If I would have fallen off, I would have got trampled. And there's so many variables that are out of my control. 
that was the most nervous I've been because I'm not a horse guy. I don't. Everyone on the horse was a professional rodeo. They hire the right guys for the right job, but I'm in the middle of it. Like I hope you guys don't trample me doing the sword fight stuff. So that was scary when a lot of the variables are out of your control for me. And when the variables are in my control, it's up to me. I got to figure it out, put myself in the best situation, which is what I thought I did in that movie, The Dark Knight Rises, but I ended up ruining the whole shot. <laughs> <laughs> so does, does coming back from, from a, a stunt injury, um, is it relatable to one of your earlier life experiences? Do you apply the same logic, same determination? A little bit. I think at, at the core, deep down, it's probably the same you know, internal function that gets you through it. But, you know, different tangible variables when you're there. So sometimes the injury can be like, I, it's my fault. I sh- definitely shouldn't have done this. I had my arm out. I knew better. My bad. Be better. I can't work for a while. It's, it's pretty quick, real-world repercussions of, hey, you put your arm out when you shouldn't have. Now you broke your arm. Guess what? You can't work for six months. Good luck paying rent. <laughs> so <laughs> pretty motivated not to do that again. Um but other times, or it could be an accident, or or it depends what the circumstances around the injury were. But it definitely helped you motivate to train a little harder, be a little more on your game, be a professional. It's controlled chaos. If you're just a cowboy, you're going to get hurt. You're not going to have a career. If you want to do this for a year and just have some cool stories, great. If you want to make it a career, you better switch your mindset to to train right, put yourself in the right group, find the right coordinator is going to keep you safe you might get a job and the guy goes hey fall down the stairs hey uh, did you test these stairs or are the, are the railings rubber i don't know you'll be all right mm, next time you call me i'm not taking that job because i don't trust your how you run the set and now you're technically my boss so once you feel that out you can it, it definitely motivates you injuries motivate you to get to that next level of this is a career let's surround myself with the right group of guys that we can all build each other up so some some structure and some planning um, similar similar to some of those other situations. Now you used a couple of terms, uh, Kevin, and just for education purposes, utility stunts and stunt double. Um, what's the difference between those two things? And is is one more involved, more dangerous? Uh, do you have a preference uh, in between the two? Or? I like me so it's all kind of your contract. So we're in the Screen Actors Guild. They give you a contract, and if your contract says you're a utility stunt person. That means you're able to play multiple roles. I could be a bad guy one day. I could be a SWAT team guy. I can be behind the camera. Uh, they can use me in any way in the, in the stunt department. If you're a stunt double, that means you are this character. You are this actor's double. <laughs> so back in the day when these contracts got written and they're losing power every day, it's, it's a whole other shady world with screen actors guild and all that stuff. But so if I'm a, a stunt double, and you want my stunt double to also play another part, then the production saves money because there's one guy doing two jobs. So we cut, we don't want that. This guy has one job. If you want this guy, you got to hire somebody else to do that job. This guy can't do all the jobs. <laughs> if you call him utility, he can do all the jobs. That's fine because that's what he's hired for. We can hire like five utility guys to go through the whole movie and keep filming, drive a car one day, fall off a building one day, do fight choreography one day, uh, do nothing one day, train an actor one day, help with a budget breakdown. And the double has to double the actor and all that kind of stuff. So there's just two contractual differences. Um, and the double, once you're a double, like uh, my buddy is Tom Holland's double for Spider-Man. Uh, and now he's in Tom's contract. So Tom and this guy have a great relationship. He's a great double. The guys are phenomenally talented. They get along. So when Tom Holland negotiates his contract, 
or about I need yellow M and M's, I need a helicopter, whatever he wants to call, right? And I have my stunt guy, and here's how much he gets paid. And now your pay goes whoop because now the actors negotiating your pay rate. With the utility guy, the pay goes yeah. Yeah, yeah, jumps a little bit, but not as much as you can jump on the double side. That's interesting because like, yeah. the utility guys got such diversity, so it's kind of interesting. Well, you have a core team, so we went to Spider Man Far From Home, and Tom wanted this same core team to do it. We did the first one with him, and we all became friends with him, and he's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. He trusts us with his life, putting him on wires, and you know, we have a good you know relationship. And he goes, Well, I want this team, and our team didn't want to go to London, we wanted to stay in America. And so our boss goes, listen, if you want our team, you got to pay us this. And Tom goes, I want that team. So we got a higher rate. We had five utility guys and the doubles. So the five utility guys, the core team, I was one of the core guys. So we got a higher rate because we shopped it as a team. So individually, you can't really do that. But eventually, you get up into the ranks and can negotiate different contracts. And, uh, a lot of it seems very founded on relationship building. Absolutely. It's all word of mouth. It's all, it's all relationships. It's all, you show up on time. If you're 15 minutes early, you're late in the stunt world. So it's a a cocoon that exists inside of that narcissistic Hollywood bubble of agents and managers and everyone gets a piece of your job or your money or Tom Cruise pays his manager 20% of his hundred million. And there's so many people get money that it creates that, that, that bubble Hmm. Uh, we don't pay anybody. We're our own business. You pay me, I get the money right in my pocket. So we is just, you know, right in the middle of that world, but separate from it. And that really builds wow. uh, the right kind of people to, to come up. And uh, it's something I really, I really enjoyed about the, the stunt aspect of Hollywood. Kevin, you've met, you've met a lot of people. You met a lot of Hollywood actors in, in your job. Did, did any ever give you any advice along the way? Or did you take anything away from any of the engagements or relationships that you had with anyone in particular? Yeah, so many. Like my first movie was The Longest Yard. That was just spoiled. That movie was 100 big stars. They're all ex-athletes. We're all playing football together. We went to training camp together. There was really no big separation. We all went to dinner together. We hung out. Burt Reynolds went to Hollywood to be a stuntman. He fell into being an actor. Uh, that was his goal. So he loved the stunt guys. Sandler loves the stunt guys. And we're all the football guys. So got to know a lot of those guys at a deeper level understanding where Sandler came from, his writing, his core group of guys. He always has in all his movies. They're just the highest quality people, you know, you've ever met and doing a really, you know, good product, obviously, and talented at what they do. But their, um, just their overall mentality of, you know, how to tackle the business. Here's where you are. Stay grounded. Keep a good community around you. Don't surround yourself with these kind of people. And you, even if they don't say it directly, you kind of just through osmosis. You just, you soak it in. Okay, these guys, all these guys are super successful. What do they have in common? Uh, okay, not complicated. Find that, build that up with it. And then uh, some of the young guys, some give you advice, some don't, but like the actors and the, some of the directors are great. Like, hey, you got what it takes, man. If you want to do this, here's what you have to do. So if you're a stunt guy, the stunt coordinator hires you. If you're a stunt coordinator, the director, producer hires you. So then you have to network with a whole different level of people. And you might not want to work for Michael Bay. That's not a great job. You get a lot of money, but you get yelled at all the time and things are blowing up every day. It's pretty stressful. So, <laughs> so kind of roundabout way answer that question. But yeah, it's definitely, if it's not directly, um, here's some advice. It's 
you can kind of see the landscape and who, who does it the right way, where do you want to be? Oh, that guy seems really happy and laid back and makes a lot of money. Like, let's go he did. Bit of a, but just bit of a indirect uh, learning as well, I guess, is, is what it, it comes down to. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. You've trained some performers or actors as well, um, <laughs> right? Like, Yes, part of the deal. Like when you when you do like like Ant Man, I was a bad guy in Ant Man. I was a bad guy stunt double. I was in a yellow jacket suit. Everything in the supervillain suit was me getting beat up by Ant Man the whole time. <laughs> and the actor Corey Stoll, who played you know Cross and and Yellow Jacket, we worked together to develop how this character would move, how the yellow jacket would jump, what kind of punches he would throw, what's his fight style, and so we created all of that. So I'm in a dojo with him every day with a fight choreographer, training him how we think he should move. And he gives me, as the actor, he gives me opinion. Ah, I think he should be more arrogant. Okay, cool. We'll tweak it here. And so all, even the act, the motion of acting, even the supervillain suit has to fit how the actor would do it. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of one on one time teaching that guy how to throw a punch. So if you can throw a punch pretty good. It makes my job a little bit easier. I don't have to redo everything. <laughs> uh, some people can, some people can't. Some people are very passionate about that side of it. Other people are like, I don't want to do this. Stunt guys, you do everything. So every actor is, is a little bit different, but every big movie, you get them in your gym. We're going to learn how to fight. We're going to hit the ground. Leave your entourage out the door. Wear sweatpants. Don't wear makeup. You're in the stunt world now. And we get to know these people at, at a different level because all that stuff's out there. We don't stroke their egos. We do it a little bit. We, we're nice and everything, but they get a more um, more raw version of a lot of these people. That you know, and they're all super nice people at the end of the day. So that's a pretty cool aspect of the job. I got I got to ask you uh, just because he's from Canada. I I think I read that you trained Justin Bieber at some point. I did a commercial with him. I was so, going to say, what was it? What was uh, it about? He was releasing a cologne back in the day. <laughs> And he had to do a commercial where he was like floating on wires with some other girl. And we had to put him in a stunt harness and pick him up and all this stuff. And uh, he was, he was super nice at the beginning, but he, I think he was 15, 16 oh, at the right. time and a millionaire. So the spoiled brat kid came out by the end of the day, but the first half of the day, he was great. He was happy to be there. And, and then he wasn't getting enough attention. He sounded like wasn't being very fun to be around, but, yeah, most of my negative experiences with people are usually the they're almost famous or they think they should be famous and that five years later he's probably a great humble guy oh, okay yeah i was kind of young and egotistical then which is you know part of growing up and growing process but i, I was gonna say yeah. why is that kevin why, why do, in your experiences why do you think that is like you're and i know what you mean it's that cusp right like yeah. they're right at at that cusp or whatever any yeah I think it's just human nature. Like even when I was a kid going through finding that line of, you know, when I'm getting bullied and teased, when do I fight? Yeah. When do I walk away? How should people treat me? And in the acting world, you got agents and managers are getting a piece of, of your money and a whole team of people are getting a piece of your money. So they, they need to protect you and put you in a little cocoon so they can kind of control you a little bit to get some of your money. Um, and they do their job. They get you interviews and auditions and that whole world is just there. So they're, Oh, cool. I got this big job. I'm making $5 million for this movie. I, they gave me my green M&Ms and they gave me my, my one, whatever, my helicopter ride to work. And they started getting treated very special because the more that agent manager can get that guy, he gets a piece of that. He gets 20% of what that guy gets. So all that goes to the package. So a lot of times the agents are asking for these things that the actor don't even know 
Like I, I thought they just gave me a helicopter ride. I didn't know I fought for that. He didn't. The agent fought for it. He just, that's just what I expect. I expect to only have green M&Ms. That's happened for five years. <laughs> then one day there's a yellow M&M. Like, hey, what the heck is this? Why do you yellow M&M? You know, you're protected from reality so many, uh, so many levels that it's hard to, to really go back to, you're yelling about a yellow M&M. Know. Oh, yeah, that's, that's fair. That seems pretty ridiculous. But you kind of slowly build to that. But a lot of kids who are newer, who are coming up, just getting a touch of fame, they feel like they have to act like the big shot. They just, right. uh, insecurity or, or whatever, like a movie with Sam there, I'm not going to say the actor thing, but one of the actors in that movie was going through that transition at the time. And like Sandler would be at the table right here. Burt Reynolds would be right here. Everyone's just having a good time, having dinner. And one table over there was someone who's way lower, has two bodyguards at his table like this. Like, no one cares about it. Burt Reynolds is two feet away from me with no bodyguards. Like, <laughs> have some self-reflection. And a couple years later, that guy was great. You, oh, okay. And then it's a learning curve. It's feeling that it, out. They figured it out, eh? Trying to act like who you want to present to be, yeah. you know? Uh, if I'm gonna demand twenty million dollars a film, I better throw that product out there. I need bodyguards. I need so they're kind of like playing the role to get the role a little bit. I think people think they have to act that way, and um, it's encouraged on the back end with amazing some managers and all that. Uh, but once you get to a certain level, like Bert or Adam, they're like they were never like that. But I mean, you can see, oh, I've, been, I've done this for twenty years. Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's going to work again. That's you know? some that's some gold advice for folks who who want to listen and and take that in. Um, you're not all just about stunt stuff here. You've given back to the community. Can you tell us a little bit about Ninja Nation? Yeah. So, uh, I did that long run in Hollywood. I needed to escape it. I was working 80, hundred hours a week all over the world. I have three young kids now and I knew I wasn't sustainable. Just on a, a time, you know, ROI. Uh, I need my time back so I can be a more present father. So I was always writing business plan after business plan and, I want to do something with athletics and mentorships and, and letting kids grow from physical outlets as well as mental challenges. And uh, I think one of the reasons I love baseball because it's the only sport in the world you can fail 70% of the time at the Hall of Fame. So dealing with failure is a, uh, is a, maybe a lost art for this uh, new generation. And I really wanted to bring that back and uh, ended up going with a, a business called Ninja Nation which is a Ninja Warrior training facility for kids. And we do birthday parties and summer camps. We also have a competitive team. We just say you can, you can play, train, or compete. You can come and play, have a good time with a big Ninja Warrior on the TV show. It's 11,000 square feet of TV show stuff. It's awesome. Uh, you can train, join our development program, get better, stronger, figure it out, challenge yourself, or you can compete. We have a competitive team that travels all around the country and competes in the sport. So it's every level of interaction you want, you want to get. And we see a lot of, a lot of progress with kids. There's, there's no college scholarships. There's no pro scouts here. You're just trying to jump from here to there until you make it. And guess what? When you make it, you feel really good about yourself. Great. Now do that 10,000 more times in a jump. I mean, it's just <laughs> a very simple concept that I think we've gotten away from as uh, if you're eight years old and you're good at baseball, there's some kind of scout that's going to try to monetize you. Come on my travel team, pay me a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. You want to go to Stanford? Ah, get those sharks out of the water. Come to Ninja and just compete for the sake of competing and be better for it. And then go play baseball if you want. So uh, that's my business now that I, I own and uh, I love it. It's great. Yeah. Be better. Be better for you first before you're better that, for someone else. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I love that. That's uh, such a good concept. I love the fact that you have those three levels and, and that the kids have an option, right? And, and can move between the levels, it sounds. Um, Kevin, look, as, as people pick up your book, uh, your new book, Falling Down to Find Myself, and, you know, I've asked you a bunch of questions of, of, you know, some of the stories in there and you've given us some insights. What do you hope they'll take away from it? I mean, it, it, this, to me, it wasn't just a stuntman story book. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of substance in, in, in that book. But what's your message? What do you want them to take away? Uh, the, the core of it is uh, there's two philosophical themes that kind of run through the book that I kind of like relate to my life. And the big one is who you are matters more than what you are. And the who is your internal, your character, your hard work, all those kind of intangibles that are internal. And anything what is external. I was a bullet kid, that's what. I was a professional athlete. I was a, a, an inmate. I've had a lot, been a lot of what's in my life. I've been broke and I've been wealthy. Those are all what's. Don't put any value in those what's. Put in the who. The stronger your who is, the stronger your character is, the stronger your internal uh, body is, you'll you won't all your what should come and go uh, it won't matter and even if it's not being a bully kid or uh, not identifying as that identify as a good character person character over everything and you know, even not a bully kid going through that you're always going to go through a transition so uh not being a dad now i'm a dad um college to work or high school to work or uh, as a parent, you're going to become an empty nester or every person everywhere is going to go through some position and you can probably see it on the horizon what's coming uh, My parents are getting older. I mean, my Asian parents, my kids are getting older. I have teenagers in the house. So it's going to be a lot of transitions. So if you build up and confident in your internal character, all those transitions are way easier to deal with. And I was lucky enough to be bullied and born with birth defect and all that to to build that up at such a young age, I was able to, yeah, let's go to Hollywood, figure it out. If it doesn't work, I'll do something else. Even to the point where, oh, yeah, I'm in Hollywood. I'm making a lot of money. I'm hanging out with famous actors. I can leave that just as easy as I can leave being a bully kid. And that just has made my transition and my, just who I am just grow at every step. And I want to, it saves you a lot of time and heartache if you can get that done before you deal with the other one. So that's probably a long answer to what, ultimately i want out there in, into the world no I, I mean dare i say a perfect answer but I, it's an answer <laughs> that i think folks can um you know digest and, and listen to and and relate to in a few different ways um i want to thank you uh for your patience with all my questions and uh you know part of me is is uh you know the the questions i had part of me was just curious about the stunt work and and the other part of me was just having read through the book um, and trying to find my own things that I relate to, thinking the listeners and your potential readers are going to relate to. Um, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got to get going. Uh, anything well, else you'd like to leave us with before we do that? Uh, no, uh, you can find me. On, I have a website, kevincast.com, K-E-B-I-N-C-A-S-S.com. I'm actually writing a curriculum around the book. I'm doing some speaking engagements at schools, building some worksheets and uh, I wrote the book. There were two ways I was going to write it. One was like the 400-page novel, character development, the whole thing. A, I'm not that good of a writer. And B, I, I, I don't know if I could, could. And then some writing groups I was in as I was getting the book done, they go, what's your goal? Well, I want to share this with kids and, and young adults, high school, college. They're not reading Harry Potter anymore. They don't have a attention span to read a 400-page novel. They're not going to do it. Break it down. So I made it a quick read. It's 150 pages. Gets all the 
philosophical things, all my story out there in a very fast, tangible, fun, sad way. But it's a quick read, and you can and you can reflect on it, and then you can go. So there's one school is buying a bunch of books. They're going to read it, study it. I come in two weeks later. I talk to them a class about that tells tough stories and and really you know deliver the message at another level. So I'm building that curriculum out. I'm going to schools to, to share that in that way. So I'm pretty excited about that. That sounds cool. And I'm gonna. I know you mentioned the KevinCast.com. We'll get that in the podcast notes for everybody as well and your contact information. So that is an honest Kevin Cassidy who is more than what the Dark Knight rises, uh, appearing in movies like Spider-Man, Ant-Man, Salt, The Hunger Games, Captain America, worked on motion capture for EA Sports, trained performers like Mickey, Nicki Minaj, Rihanna, Britney Spears, and we heard Justin Bieber. He has a book now, and he can share his uh, in his life and work lessons. It's called Falling Down to Find Myself. I'll have the book contact information for Kevin in the podcast notes. Thank you again so much, Kevin. Thank you. It was awesome. Thanks for having me. Wow, what a way to end 2022. What a fantastic lineup we had this month. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to all of our guests for 2022. Thank you to all of our listeners in 2022. Hope you're coming back in 2023. I want to wish everybody a happy holiday, a Merry Christmas. Celebrate the way that you celebrate. Be safe, have fun. Now let's have Jazz Robertson take us out with her song, It Ain't Me. Taking us into the new year. Take care, everybody. Here's Jazz Robertson. Kind of feels like maybe it's a game to you Watching me break down I tried so hard to Turn into the person you need Somehow convinced myself I could give you life if I bleed But I don't think I should have to explain myself Or justify the things that I need I've seen the way you turn your whole world upside down When something's your priority And it ain't me
to you when you're shutting down. 